Welcome to the Gerto Amazing Podcast. This is Tony Mays. I'm very happy to have uh, an author whose books I bought and read and, and just uh, has, has been an inspiration to me from, from some of the paths that he's walked to get to where he is today as far as a writer goes. And once I looked more into his background, I knew that he was someone that I wanted to talk to more and get to understand where he's from. So his name is Mike Massa. He's an author primarily for Bain Books, but he's also done some publishing, I think with Chris Kennedy Publishing. And he's got two books out there. I'm gonna pull up his uh, kind of CV for books. He's got two books that he's co-authored with uh, a USA Today bestselling author, John Ringo, who's got dozens of books out there. And it looks like you've probably got seven anthologies plus mm -hmm. a uh, Kane Riordan universe novel out there, uh, mm -hmm. plus some of your own under development. So Mike is a uh, former Navy SEAL, I guess uh, retired Navy SEAL, who was a BUDS instructor as well as a SEAL officer uh, mm -hmm. and still lives in the San Diego area. He went from the teams into being a businessman with corporate life, uh, currently works a little bit in, in the computer industry, and but has spent plenty of time traveling the world, wearing those expensive suits and ties and, and probably uh, uh, being away from your family about as much as being a SEAL, I would imagine. So well, yeah, uh, let's absolutely. Do it. Well, Tony, thanks for having, having me on yeah. the, uh, the cast today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. No problem. And you're also a husband, father, uh, grandfather now as well. So I am. Uh, yeah. Yep. Where are you at these days? Where's home for Mike these days? Well, for the moment, we are, uh, we've returned to California a couple of months ago. We're living in uh, San Diego County. We have a lot of family in the area, so including our grandchildren. So of course, that's a big draw, seeing the family again and being nearby. Mm -hmm. um, but the clan is spread out over the globe. Uh, I have uh, family in Pac Northwest, uh, in the Northeast and the South. You know, so okay. from New York to Tennessee to Washington State, I've got a son who's currently deployed. Uh, he's embarked on board a U.S. Navy warship in the Northern Arabian Gulf. Okay. So he's quite busy. What branch um, is Marine, Marine or Navy? He's Navy, but he's considering. Um, using one of the uh, blue to green programs okay. and applying to another service mm -hmm. uh, for an aviation program. So we'll see how that works out. Okay. Okay. My cousin is, and I think I told you I was going to look this up, but my cousin's a helicopter pilot in the Navy was stationed in San Diego for a long time as well, but flying a Seahawk, but if he's great airplane. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It was great. So, uh, so Mike, how did you tell me, I mean, I, I did a little bit of an introduction to you, but what would you say, what, what kind of set the foundation for Mike growing up? I mean, did you grew up in the, in the, in the San Diego County area as well? For the latter part of my, you know, for high school, certainly, and for college, certainly, mm -hmm. but my family, uh, my father was a Naval officer and about the time I was born, he had taken a, uh, a post in South America as a defense attache, and this would be, have been in the 70s. This is during the era of Juan and Eva Perón and the Peronistas um, and the, uh, the rise of the Argentine military junta where he was, where we were stationed. And so I grew the, up. The family went with down there? The family Sorry? went with? That wasn't a hardship? Oh, everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we were there for quite some time. Uh, we left in a bit of a hurry because uh, dad 
um, elected not to cooperate with some of the more extreme decisions being taken by the the um, Peronistas military junta, and as a result, uh, he was NPG, so it's called persona non grata. They, they kick you out of the country and they give you a very little time. Yeah. So on very little notice, we we uh, relocated, and my dad's next set of orders were to New Orleans, Louisiana, which was my first, I think it was my first American home. Okay. Uh, and I went to elementary That's school. That's a heck of a place for your first uh, American home in northern Louisiana. Well, sometimes. yeah, and I, and I, yeah. <laughs> I, showed up in New, I showed up in New Orleans as uh, a little boy who wasn't speaking any English. Or oh, wow. I, could, I understood it perfectly well, but when we went through passport control, for example, I was so mad at being forced to move. And yeah, from my yeah. cushy position as a, as a kid in a, in a fancy house, uh, that I do not speak English. And that caused a bit of a stir as we came through customs, as you might imagine. Yeah. Yep, um, yep. Have you seen the, have you seen the sound of music? Yes. Yep. Musical. So you remember the scene where the children descend or stand at the foot of the staircase and they introduce themselves to the guests at yes, the party. Yep. So uh, mom, well, you're a defense attache or charge the affairs. Your role is very much to build relationships with your opposite mm -hmm. numbers both sure. with the host nation and with all the other organ all the other countries that have uh, a military uh, mission there. Sorry for the wiggling. I'm a, I was tapping. The no, that's fine. Foot. And I would, I'm the youngest of five. So mom and dad would line up their five children <laughs> and we'd all have to introduce ourselves in Spanish and, uh, you know, have like a fun fact about ourselves. And then we would go upstairs. And as the youngest, I would go last. And I was, you know, like most that's like straight out of the movie in the, in the <laughs> kindergarten, first and second grade, you're the, you're the baby of the family, right? you're the yeah. darling. And yeah. I loved the attention. And so uh, I very much um, resented having to leave that kind of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, I went from a private school in Buenos Aires to a public school in, um, in uh, New Orleans mm -hmm. on the West Bank in an area called, uh, God, what's it called? Right off Charles de Gaulle Avenue. Um, I'll think of it in a moment. Anyhow, the seminal event in New Orleans, one of them was, that's where I saw, uh, I saw it in the theater, Star Wars. Okay. And that was like a lot of kids of the air. That was my first real deep interest in science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. And the, you know, Buck Rogers had been around for a while. Bastard Galactica came a little bit after, as I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, but yep. really it was all about Star Wars. And that's when my interest got that peak. And of course, being an 80 brat, I was already sort of inter interested in the military and so forth. Sure. Um, moved around a bit more. My mom and dad retired in California. Um, and I uh, went to high school in San Diego and I went to um, UCLA. So I was up in, I was in Angelino for four years or so and I returned there for my graduate degree. But I um, had, a, had a brother in the service, had another brother who was a uh, uh, professional uh, fisherman. He, he owned a couple of fishing boats and fished professionally. Oh, so incredible. I like was deep, looking deep sea for fishing, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so, so college, hold on there that we just covered a lot of history there. And I, and mm -hmm. so what was your major in college at the time? Or would you graduate? Well, I, began as, a, <laughs> I began as a math major. Uh, okay. and this is the point at which uh, Mrs. Massa enters the picture. <laughs> so uh, my wife and I met in high school. And we began dating and we, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year of uh, my university, 
her sophomore and junior year, we had a baby, which was a period of high excitement for both of our uh, Roman Catholic families because we oh, were yeah. married. <laughs> it was a period sure. of high drama in, in our two clans. Mm-hmm. And um, happily, it all worked out in the end. And with the, with the support and love from, from both sets of parents and okay. the extended families. But you can imagine uh, the first few weeks were pretty exciting. Um, Lorna is the youngest of eight. Okay. Yeah. I'm the yeah. youngest of five. Her my, brothers and sisters were not pleased with me. My wife is her parents. Her mom is the youngest of 11 and her dad is the youngest or no second oldest of 10 or something like that. So yeah, mm-hmm. our grandparents on down on her dad's side is over a hundred people now. So <laughs> oh, I meant to ask you, uh, Maze, is that Dutch? It's German, French, so it's it's probably typically pronounced Moss, and mm-hmm. for some reason, our family just has always pronounced it differently, so mm-hmm. that's kind of why I had to put the, on the podcast, put like the the line over the A's so everyone would figure out how to pronounce it correctly and things like that, sure. so yeah, yeah, um, but it, you know, it, it, I'll answer to just about anything, and I've been called a lot worse than that, so, you know. <laughs> Well, I had a scholarship, I had a military scholarship to school, and okay. uh, your, between your sophomore and junior year, you have to commit to a warfare specialty or branch within the Navy, mm-hmm. or Marine Corps, you would be a Marine Corps. Sure. Were you doing and summer cruises then, then as well? I do. Yeah. So okay. I did I, my, uh, my freshman or uh, youngster cruise, my, sorry, my apprentice cruise was on board a now decommissioned um, Ballistic missile carrying nuclear powered submarine, USS okay. Von Steuben, SSBN 632 Blue Crew, because they each have two crews. Sure. Um, and I had a very, uh, unusually, I had a very eventful boomer deployment because typically they go out, they submerge once, they stay submerged <laughs> for the duration of their, their target package mm-hmm. responsibility, and then they come back. Yep. And that's it. And you never know where oh, you are we, or anything like that, or yeah. Well, no, exactly. The, uh, yeah. the or the CEO <laughs> knows. <laughs> and and one of the interesting things is, is if you get usually when you go to a ship or a squadron to for your first cruise, you get a very sort of cursory background check hmm. as your um, everybody on a nuclear uh, missile carrying uh, patrol submarine has to get a top secret or better clearance because of the, the importance of secrecy to the survival of the platform. Sure. Sure. And also in submarines in general, you, there's no way to com- It's very difficult to compartmentalize a submarine so that the things that are secret aren't visible to anybody in the crew. Yeah. Like it's yeah. trivially easy to know what depth you're at and the depth at which the submarines operate is the classified number. Sure. So um, my cruise was extended because the boat that was supposed to replace us, and this was, gosh, I think the Von Steuben was a uh, Lafayette class. So she was, or an Ethan Allen class. I think she's the second so, kind of submarine that we built for that role. Was so this around was like 1990-ish, somewhere in there? This, is, this, is, this would have been 1986. 86, okay. All right. And that submarine had been built in the early 60s. Okay. So she was an old boat then, mm-hmm. um, and the tridents that were uh, being built were just coming out. Okay. Uh, regardless, the boat that was supposed to relieve us after a certain amount of time broke. And could, <laughs> and that means you don't get to come home. You stay yep, submerged. Yep. So I ended up doing 61 days consecutively submerged, 
Yeah. And my, I, had, my, I had two jobs. My first job was as a homes and plainsman because there's not enough room. You can't, you're not a passenger, you're working. Yeah. So I was a homes and plainsman and you work um, eight hours on, eight hours off, eight hours on, eight hours off, or occasionally if you have enough people, eight on, 16 off. Okay. And I was also the quartermaster of the watch under okay. instruction. So I had a really salty first class petty officer who was not <laughs> delighted to have a snot nosed college boy. <laughs> As what, like, an, would you, what was your supposed rank at that time? Like an ensign third class or something like that? Oh, so you're, you're not, no, you're not a commissioned officer. I was a midshipman. Yeah. Oh, midshipman. Uh, okay. Third gotcha. class. Okay. So you're the lowest of the low. When you get issued a hat, they, instead of the regular white Dixie, because you're wearing, you're wearing enlisted clothes. Mm -hmm. Instead of wearing um, uh, the regular white Dixie cup, yep. it was a white Dixie cup with a bright blue rim. Okay. And to all know that you weren't a real guy or a real so they could tell the, they could tell who you were. Yep. This one's a risk. Watch out for him. Hmm. And of course, all the sailors would tell their girlfriends and their female friends ashore, if you see a guy with a hat with a blue stripe, means he has DD, you should stay away from him. Mm -hmm. And so we, we sure you know, I sure appreciated that. Anyhow, we um we ended up uh staying out even longer than we expected. And before we went out, we did a, we were able to go to OTET, which is the Atlantic Underwater Test and Evaluation Center. Mm -hmm. And they offloaded the midshipmen because there wasn't enough room for them and the crew that came aboard to shoot a magazine full of torpedoes. Okay. So I had to spend three, the beginning of the cruise was wonderful. I got in a submarine, we went out for about two or three days and they helicoptered me off and sent me to the Bahamas for four days by myself on the beach. It was magnificent. Nice. I'm like, yeah. yeah, this is a good <laughs> life. I, I like submarines. Yep. And then we pulled into uh, into Goose Creek Weapon Station. I think it's in Charleston, okay. near Charleston. And uh, they pulled the warhead packages on two missiles. And we did a live ballistic missile shoot, which is very, very rare. Yeah. So this, what I'm getting at is this is, this was the busiest, most exciting kind of submarine cruise you can have. And then we had 61 days sure. of going very slow and very deep and making no noise. Mm -hmm. And the experience convinced me that I did not want to go nuclear. <laughs> that was going to be my right. next question is, yeah, did you want to be in a so submarine? Submarines, yeah. right out. Not going to yeah. do stuff. What's left? Mm -hmm. So my sophomore year, sophomore summer, there's an event called Mid, which is where you go on board a surface. Sorry, you, uh, you rotate through... A week with the surface Navy, a week with the um, Naval Aviators, a week with the Marines. And I forget what, I think our last week was a week with the surface ships, including like half a day to visit the SEAL Command. Okay, gotcha. And I had, a, again, I had a chance as a midshipman to fly in a jet aircraft. So I got, I got to do the Dilbert bunker where they throw you in the pool and turn you upside down. Sure. Um, I got to do the high altitude chamber where you, they, they put you in a, um, and a barometric chamber, what's it called? Hyperbaric chamber. Mm -hmm. And they suck the air out so you can experience hypoxia and yep. recognize the symptoms. Okay. And then um, they give you a flight. And so I've got a, had a magnificent two and a half hour <laughs> long ride in the back of an F-14 Tomcat. <laughs> and, uh, you and know, how many not times did you throw And how many times are like, oh, midshipmen. <laughs> yep, yep. So that, hey, you guys hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. We'll buy you breakfast first. Yeah. <laughs> so, as much as you want. And we went to, so that I, I got a chance to do my, my breakfast later. And what they do is the, uh, the crew chief touch, he, he makes sure your, uh, your straps are tight and he pulled out two barf bags and he mm -hmm. touched them in the strap right here because if they're in your pocket, you can't get them out in time. Sure. 
and I, I filled my bar my barf bag, but we had a, <laughs> it was it was about as exciting as you might imagine. And in between sure. sophomore and junior years, my eyes got just bad enough to where I wasn't going to qualify to be a pilot. Gotcha. Huh. Okay. All right. So what's left? And I spent my senior summer on a supposed to be an aircraft carrier, ended up being an amphibious ship. And I'm like, huh, this is not for me. That doesn't I'm not leaving me a lot of options here. Yeah. You just and, was it was it just the the humdrum day to day of being on a ship kind of thing that didn't really appeal? Was that that most of it? The the the, <laughs> the saying in the junior officer surface warfare qualified community mm-hmm. is surface warfare eats their own. Okay. In other words, there's it never gets so hard that that won't make it harder. The <laughs> the stories of people who go to a surface ship and 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 work routinely work not just like stay awake routinely work for thirty or forty hours straight mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. with no recognition no change in pay promotion status or the rest of it fairly mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. well, painful. And that probably and brings it was, up it was, some... it was legend. It was legend then, yeah. and it's only gotten worse, which is one of the reasons why we have a crisis in mm-hmm. surface warfare right now. Mm-hmm. And I offer as Exhibit A the fact that a capital ship in peacetime burned the water line at the pier, mm-hmm. not enemy action, at the pier. And so far, as far as we all know publicly, there's no consequence. Yeah. The one in the, uh, it was the one under repair in San Diego. It was a home Richard, just yeah. about to leave the yards after a multi hundred million dollar renovation so she could yeah. equip the yeah. new F 35 multi role fighter. Yes. Um, yeah. You just can't change out the airplanes on an, air, on an aircraft carrier or a helicopter carrier. You actually have to do a major ship alt because mm-hmm. the places the airplanes are stored and where the engines are tested and, and repaired, all that has to be completely ripped out and reinstalled. Mm-hmm. So it's a major, major ship haul. In and effect, it, it was a brand new ship. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they're going to have to build a whole new one. I heard they're just going to end up scrapping it from last there, year. Yeah, there's, well, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. All you got to do is jack the ship up on lifts, slide <laughs> a new ship underneath it, and you're good to go, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is criminal that we lost a capital ship, mm-hmm. and there doesn't appear to be anyone who's going to be held publicly accountable. It is, well, then there's other incidents it, out out in uh which whichever fleet is out by japan and things like so the seventh fleet seventh fleet with so a uh, u.s pacific fleet yeah. has had a series of well publicized yeah collisions mm-hmm. and groundings and fatalities due to a variety of factors mm-hmm. but fundamentally the issues are we don't have enough ships mm-hmm. so the ones we have we're running and ragged um the training required to safely operate the ships is deferred in order to maintain an operational tempo because the leadership currently in the military but i'll speak to the navy i know it the best Mm -hmm. you're a senior officer one of the critical things you're graded on is are your are the forces under your command available for use yep no are they deployable are they back deployed if the answer is no it's a significant ding Mm -hmm. it's rare that someone is asked are the people under your command trained to standard in a verified way using any kind of quality assurance that we could recognize and independent yeah. audit. Yeah. That doesn't go on your, on your report card. Your report card is, are my ships and airplanes ready to go? Yes, no. Mm-hmm. And 
we've so you're been gonna, you're going to fudge it. <laughs> we've, we've been using up our ships and exhausting our sailors, and that isn't my opinion. These are the findings of the courts of inquiry for the sure. for at least the two ships that were involved with uh, U.S. sailors dying in the collisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, um, very limited um, number of people held accountable, although certainly more so than were the case with the Bonhomer Shard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we we saw the uh, head of surface warfare. Uh, sorry, we had a we saw the. Um, Head of the surface warfare fleet in the Pacific was relieved early. We saw the uh, fleet commander relieved, and I believe we saw the Desaurus squadron commander relieved. Actually, it was Crudez squadron. And we also saw, obviously, the, the skippers of both those ships were rightfully and immediately relieved. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there were some court martials for uh, a handful of officers, although I think the conclusions were lack of training i think and well no, I, don't, I don't think there there is no yeah there's very limited impact yeah. compared to the the depth of their of the of the errors that were made yeah and that sounds i mean that uh, overall that's just a huge leadership failure across the board pretty much stemming, stemming from the cno on down right I would absolutely yeah. and but that but this isn't a new thing for the surface navy like mm -hmm. so going back to the original question which is why not go on a ships that was a known quality of that subdivision of the Navy okay. long ago, 35, 40 years ago. And it's only gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. In fact, okay. one of the big motivators for naval officers and sailors that go to BUDS, the Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School, is that if you should flunk out, if you should drop out, if you should get hurt, mm -hmm. they send you to a ship. Okay. And trainees... <laughs> At the outset, regard that as a as a fate worse than death. Yeah, certainly it motivated me. Yeah, so but it, it kind of looks it sounds like to me that you were looking for a little bit of adventure anyway, though, right? I mean, just well, right. Well, teenager uh, doesn't. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but maybe mean, more so than the average, you know, midshipman or something like that. I mean, you had classmen that probably just wanted to get in their time in the navy and get get out. Sure. And, sure. But did you look at it as more of a career in the making kind of a thing, or were or were you just looking? I didn't. I didn't really have a. I was. I had a very short decision horizon. <laughs> uh, again, let me refer you to my earlier decision uh, to engage in activity that resulted in a baby. So, oh, yeah, true. Uh, yeah. Uh, young Mike Massa was not known <laughs> for thinking about deep thoughts for the future. Um, gotcha. It, it, but I, I very much wanted a challenge. I wanted something that I could begin where the outcome was in doubt. Mm -hmm. I didn't want something handed to me. Okay. And in most of the military accession programs, the goal is to get the maximum number of people through. In fact, barring something absolutely unusual and unforeseen happening, mm -hmm. everybody graduates from surface warfare officer school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to quick aside. Until the point at which they disestablished SLOSS and made it a no kidding, here's a rack of 40 DVD ROMs in your spare time in between watches on the ship, you need oh to watch gosh. all of those. Yeah. It, literally, they disestablished <laughs> SLOSS and then wonder why the fleet sailors were having such a hard, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. The decisions boggle the mind. So <laughs> the um, uh, reported a buzz hmm. in the summer of 89. So what class, what what class were you in? What, what class? Uh, I classed up with class 165. 
Okay. And the Thursday before Hell Week, I had there's an evolution called IBS Rock Portage. Have you ever heard okay. of that? Yes. So IBS stands for Inflatable Boat Small. It's a World War II era inflatable black. And it is, and, and if you're trying to carry one, I can imagine it is not small. So. <laughs> well, it, 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 by, this, by, by today's standards, it's a lot smaller yeah. than a Zodiac, right? Okay. Zodiac is, you know, is a is a 12 to 16 foot long boat, and you can even put a a proper keel on it if you want to, or a proper sure. foreboard made of metal. An inflatable boat is literally just a funny shaped inner tube. Sure. Okay. No exaggeration. Okay. And it can fit seven men, seven people, if mm -hmm. they're really good friends. Okay. And the, the boat becomes the, the organizational element, the boat crew is the organizational element for the first phase of BUDS. The only more granular unit is a, sw is a swim pair. So there's two people and sure. you're always within a certain distance of each other for safety. Mm -hmm. So the boat, to move the boat, which is unwieldy, unpowered, um, to say the least, requires a lot of teamwork to paddle properly. So you do a lot of races yep. where you have yep. all the boats. There's an inspection to make sure that your gear, as limited as it is, is squared away. Hmm. So there's a, you know, and then they, you're inspected and then they send you out and you, you literally, you race out past the, the, the breakers, hit a buoy and come back. Sure. And the first boat gets to sit down and rack, relax for five minutes. The next five boats might get told, okay, they get to, they have to stand up, yep. but yep. no one's messing with them. And boats three and boats uh, seven, eight, and nine do extended calisthenics, and boat ten the same while the staff throw shovelfuls of sand out. <laughs> and then you so you cycle that for six hours. Yep. Yep. Well, so once you've mastered moving your boat, you have to get it. Now the idea is get it across the rocks at night in heavy surf. Okay. So it's one of the first. And what time? What time of year was this? What time of year is this? Let's see. I classed up. In 165 in the summertime. Oh, you so got lucky. Would been, this would have been like August, September. So not okay. notably high surf. Yeah. Um, but when you're when you're paddling your boat onto a breakwater made of of black, slick, yep. barnacle encrusted boulders that are mm -hmm. three and four feet and smaller in size, yep. uh, all jagged edges at night, it doesn't take a whole lot of wave to make that pretty exciting. Yeah, I can imagine. And in, in my case, uh, what they do is they have a guy on the, on the shore and he's got a pair of uh, flashlights and mm -hmm. colors on them. And he waves in the boat crews and directs you where to go. So you go to a relatively safe place. And so when you, when the boat gets to the rocks, the, the coxswain, they, you keep rowing to pin the boat to the rocks because the sure. waves are coming and going. Sure. And then the coxswain, the guy in back, the officer, orders the uh, number one oarman man ashore with the painter to try and find a place to brace himself. And when he says he's set, you send everyone else ashore except yourself. You go out the back and you hold the, the back of the boat so it doesn't flip over. Sure. Well, the waves are coming and going. Mm -hmm. And so the water depth is changing. And we actually happened to hit it at the low tides. We had the highest amount of rocks to go up. Uh, so it worked out. Yeah. And when the, uh, as, as you, the, the guy bracing the boat, you can't see where the waves are. So they warn you, they say water. And so you kind of clench and you brace and the wave breaks on you and you're underwater for a while. And then it swirls and then it leaves. And that cycle happens a half a dozen times. So it's pitch black. The guy, they're trying to begin to haul the boat up and they go water, water. And then someone goes boat. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and that's the last thing I remember before I woke up on the beach, because what had happened is the next person to come in 
mistook where I was where they were supposed to go. So a boat full of water and seven dudes pile drove me into the sand. Oh, wow. And uh, I busted both legs. Uh, I had to have surgery to fix one of my legs. Fix my right knee. Right knee. Right knee. And this was the week before Hell Week? This was the week before Hell Week? Yes. So you had already gone through, what, five weeks by then? Something like uh, that? Four weeks and four days. Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, so I wake up and my instructor, uh, one of them was on the beach, and he does the old, how many fingers am I holding? And I went, you have fingers? He's like, yeah, put them in the ambulance. And I began fighting because I knew what that meant. I, mm-hmm. I looked down and my feet were like 90 yeah. degrees to where they're supposed And I went, oh, I don't, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> so uh, they fixed me up and they, auto, they automatically change your orders that as soon as you get better, you're going to go to the fleet. Mm-hmm. No. Which yeah, is not what I wanted want to that. do. Yeah. And while you're getting better, while you're on crutches and physical therapy, because they can't send you the next command until you're healthy. Mm-hmm. So while that was happening, I work basically as an admin officer doing scut work, just literally filling out paperwork about musters and medical roles and uh, mm-hmm. performance results and just. And this, what year was, what, what year was this? This was, you said 89. 89. Okay. So there was literally, I mean, there was just standard deployments going on. I mean, this was obviously, you know, 20, 20, no, 12 years before 9-11. So yes. there, there wasn't oh, yeah. much. There was nothing happening. Uh, yeah. No one wanted to go to PACOM because it was called PeaceCom. There was, yeah. there was literally, other than uh, there'd been a, a little war in Granada in 83 and we did Panama in the winter of 88. Yeah. yeah. That's it. But then, I, yeah, then it got a little bit exciting. Um, long, long version short, I learned the in and outs of how to, of how the administrative component of BUDS worked. And okay. I didn't want to go to the fleet. And so what I did is I hid how well I was progressing medically. And I trained <laughs> privately on my okay. own at nighttime. And I, I got my run behinds back up. I, kept, I was always a good swimmer. I, kept, I would run the, the uh, obstacle course at night to stay in practice and keep a good score. Hmm. And then when 169 classed up, it's, it's the classes are begin like more than a hundred people. No one, not everybody knows everybody else. And they meet in the dark on the first morning. Okay. They they kind of recognize each other, but it's, it's a, they're not well organized. It's a complete cluster. (laughs) And so that night I shaved my head and I had all my old uniforms and I just showed up and I put myself into their class. This was how long after you broke both your legs? Well, I only broke one. The other one was was, uh, was sprained in uh, okay. torn ligaments. So I exaggerated okay. a little bit. Um, well, yeah, torn ligaments. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, someone's going to claim that I'm exaggerating. That I didn't actually break bones in both legs. So oh, okay. Sorry. Gotcha. But the, um, let's see. What, uh, what was the question again? Uh, when, how long between when you, August, when you had oh, your accident? And, it would have been, I think it would have been four months. Okay. So now we're looking at like September, October timeframe. Which so is I just showed up mm-hmm. and I begin training. And, and because I'm, I'm, because my name's in all the right paperwork, no one questions it. <laughs> and my plan was to get through hell week and then dare them to kick me out. That was my plan. Gotcha. And the problem is the longer you're in buds in your class, the fewer people there are. Yep. So you yep. can hide in a group of 130, which is how 169 class up 131 people. Okay. After a few weeks, there's a lot less. Sure. And yeah. the phase officer, who's a, 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 he's the senior instructor for the basic conditioning phase, first phase, Buds, 
mm-hmm. walked up. And it's funny because he he later became the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. Ryan Zinke <laughs> walks up, big, huge forearms, and he goes, Mr. Massa, do I know you? And I went, who y'all know? And he goes, no, I think I know you. Are you in this class? And I went, who y'all in this class? He goes, how did you get to be in this class? I'm like, well, I, I, I have orders to buds. It's, yeah. And he goes, you had orders to buds, but when I didn't recognize <laughs> your name, I looked it up and you're not supposed to be here. So he spent the next couple hours metaphorically beating the shit out of me, right? Basically, he was sending me from my, his office uh, about 300 yards to the beach, sprint it, okay. get wet and sandy and sprint back. And he would give me you know, less and less and less time. Sure, sure. And at kind the end of, of it, and I, had to, I had to fill a sea bag with uh, four ammo cans and fill the ammo cans with sand and rocks. Okay. And you push ups and sit ups and, and flutter, all that crap. <laughs> and, I, and I still wouldn't quit. It's like, all right, tell you what, Mr. Mass, I'm, if you do anything wrong, is you so much as break wind and offend my, my senses. If you mm-hmm. squint me at anything, not only are you going to leave, I'm going to make sure you don't, you go to the absolute worst possible set of orders, not just mm-hmm. the, the Navy in general. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that chance. Mm-hmm. And he didn't talk to me again until Hell Week. Okay. And uh, they, for Hell Week, we're doing all the same stuff, but very, very slowly because you really can't sustain. So Hell Week, for anybody that doesn't know, is you don't get to sleep for most of that week, right? Yeah, you're, you, they keep you moving. They keep you up and at it. They keep you saying more evolutions. Okay, so. Basically. Yeah. And you, you get a couple of cat naps and that's about it. Defined okay. as like 30 minutes of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, we were somewhere way south and we were doing these races and, you know, we're all, we're just, we're an absolute mess. And he walks up and I'm like, oh crap. Now, now he's going to do it. He's, he's a statistic <laughs> son of a bitch. He's going to drop me now as I'm finishing Hell Week. And he walks up and he goes, Mr. Master, you ever watched a movie called Papillon? And, I'm, and I can barely say my own name. I'm like, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, sir. Uh, yeah. I, with, uh, yeah. And I try, to, I try to name the actors and I can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman are the lead actors for Papillon. Okay. And he goes, do you remember what happened when they put him in solitary? And I said, Oh, yeah, they, he, he was kept alive because friends were helping him out. And then he got caught with uh, coconuts. He goes, that's right. And he handed me a coconut. And I, I was so brain addled. I'm like, I, I don't understand. He goes, you can use this coconut right now. If you want, if you quit, I'll make sure you get good orders anywhere you want to go. Hmm. I'll send you to an embassy. I'll send you to the best ship in the Navy. But, you know, no hmm. questions asked, no dishonor. And I went, I took the coconut. I chucked it out in the surf. <laughs> and he hammered me for a little longer and said, all right, good job, Mr. Mass. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. And it was a shock many years later <laughs> to see him as mm-hmm. first as a congressman, actually sure. a, state senator, a state assemblyman, then a congressman, and then, of course, uh, Secretary of the Interior. Nice. So... Uh, what it, let me I just want to ask a few questions about that because I, I love hearing your story about it, but I just want to know what did you think after your first day in buds? Did you see guys drop first oh, day? Yeah. Percent. Were you was there no uh I mean what was your attitude going in that there was no way you were doing that you were gonna drop, that you were gonna go ring the bell or anything like that? So my first day of my first buds class. Mm-hmm. which began with about 150 people, I, I emotionally committed to, I'm only going to, I'm only going to leave here if they kick me out or they carry me out. I'm not going to volunteer out. Okay. And sure as shit, they carried me out. Sons of bitches. <laughs> so I said, did all you, right. 
Yeah, take, it take, wasn't yeah, right. Take two. Yeah, I'm not going to leave. Period. Yeah. Okay. Which is, do you kind of break it down day by day, hour by hour, just to try oh, and hour uh, by hour, and minute, some by minute. minute by minute. You, yeah. The the successful bud student does not plan too far into the future. You tackle your obstacles incrementally, and at the end of every day, you're still there. Yeah. Um, much later in my time as a SEAL, I was the first phase officer and fourth phase officer for BUDS. So I, I had the job that then Lieutenant and now Secretary Zinke held before me. Okay, that's awesome. And So I do have and, to ask from that, uh, there was that Navy SEAL documentary back in the 90s that had instructor Pat Stone in there. Do you know him? Mm -hmm. Did you ever know him at all? <laughs> so I'm a, we're acquainted. I, I never worked okay. with him closely. Okay. It's a Sorry. fairly small community. And so you when you attend the annual reunions, you, you run into all kinds of people and you know have sure. beers and so forth. But it's sure people would be shocked to learn how many men have qualified and operated as SEALs. So mm -hmm. just do the basic math, average six to eight courses a year, average class size and graduation is about 25 mm -hmm. times every year since 1962. That's a lot of people. It's in the tens of thousands. Yeah. So it's it's a fairly large community of people. Okay. Although at any given time, the active duty strength is quite modest. Yeah, yeah. And so I, my, I, my class began uh, 131 people and six months, the class 169. And uh, six months later, we graduated uh, 16 of the original students and a further 18 students that had rolled in who'd been injured before, yeah. and instead of rejoining on day one, week one, they rejoin in the second or third phase. Okay, okay. So we graduated 31 for about a 20% graduation rate. Okay. And, and as, that, a, as day an officer- day out, that's, about, that's the average. And as an officer, did you get special attention as well? Well, absolutely. Yeah, before they tell me to do push-ups or send me to go do, uh, get wet and sandy, they always said, sir. <laughs> but nothing, well, I mean, I guess it's probably- uh, it's not a picnic for anyone involved. So, but they didn't sign, you know, unless you're underperforming, they didn't signal you off for extra over. No, I mean, my last, my, my surname was always a source of amusement because it ends in the phrase ASSA. Yeah. So they say, Mr. Massa, move your ass up. And they go, oh, <laughs> never got old, right? If yeah, was exactly. Yep. Uh, I was always a really, really good swimmer okay. and really good at, at PT, which is, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups. And I became quite good at the obstacle course, but I was, even as a much younger man, you can tell I'm not, I'm no longer in fighting trim. Even as a young man, uh, when I was six foot, not quite six foot one inches tall, I still weighed about 220 pounds. Okay. And even at 4% body fat, that's still 220 pounds. So you're not, yeah. the, over the first 50 yards, I'm as fast as anybody else. Mm -hmm. After six or seven miles, no. Yeah. yeah. And so when you begin <laughs> in buds, it's not, you know, I find myself in the middle of the pack. Perfect. Anonymity. But the problem is, is people that are quitting from the back. So even though the front doesn't get further away, the back gets closer and closer. <laughs> so one day you're running and the pickup truck that's been behind you the whole time yelling at people pulls alongside the microphone and they lean in with the microphone next to you while the truck is rolling, the window rolled down and goes, sure. oh, Mr. Assa, nice to see you, sir. Go get wet. So you have to stop running, sprint <laughs> to the ocean, get wet, come back and catch up. And then they do that over and again. What they're, what they're trying to train to is that winning and making your utmost effort is far, far better than losing and having mm -hmm. keep trying anyhow. Mm -hmm. So Bud Did selects for, a, a, I should say, 
when I was there as an instructor and as a student, Bud selected for stubbornness, physical endurance, patriotism, and teamwork, and a, and a, and a modicum of aggression. Really, aggression was sort of secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, above all else, teamwork, mm-hmm. motivation, patriotism, and stubbornness, sort of indifference to discomfort, if you will. Sure, sure. Um, it doesn't select for being a genius. Mm-hmm. It doesn't select for thinking, you know, years and months ahead. And mm-hmm. so people are, you know, people occasionally get surprised when active duty or former SEALs do stupid stuff. Well, <laughs> well sure, we're just, we're just people that, yeah. been, that are selected for certain traits. Mm-hmm. So sure. if you need someone who's really, really stubborn and won't give up, SEAL's probably a good choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that isn't always the right person to have. Sure, so. sure. So that not every phase, problem is a, is a nail. Yeah, so phase two is the dive comp phase. Phase two was uh, back then, was a land warfare phase. Oh, it was. Okay. Okay. And so you wore your red helmet. You went from a green helmet to a red helmet and you learned the basics of land navigation, patrolling, weapons qualification, demolitions, um, and then blending all those things with moving across the water to land as well as underwater demolition. So that was the first time I'd ever handled explosives and used them underwater. Mm -hmm. And then you return. The thinking was that Almost everybody passes the technical component of land warfare, mm-hmm. although there still continues to be a certain number of physical drops. Sure. And that the, uh, the thinking then was, but diving, which was more technical because we're not just doing an open circuit, we're doing kind of closed circuit, yeah. required a certain amount of basic math and, and basic physics, not very hard for a college graduate, but kind of hard from you know, an E2 from Newton, Ohio, that on his first time in the ocean went puh, puh, it's salty yeah <laughs> you know, he let you know he left high school and he was a junior mm-hmm. and never took math at all mm-hmm. so they they were hoping that by uh, having that last he would reduce the academic attrition okay um i understand that since that time training has been radically restructured although okay. interestingly attrition is about the same <laughs> well there's something to be said for that phase of dive, dive comp where they rip your entire breathing apparatus off and tie it yeah. in knots yeah. and you got to get it straightened out before you can surface i mean that I takes way back <laughs> a, a lot of our evolutions were named things that would be currently would be considered um socially inappropriate sure <laughs> um but but yeah the uh and and for, for whatever reason, I've always been very comfortable in the water and underwater. Okay. So while it was by no means a picnic, I passed everything in dive phase the first time with one exception, which is, I don't know if they still do this or not, but there used to be a requirement that they put your tanks on you, all your equipment goes on you, like you're going to go diving. Um, they take your fins off and okay. you have to tread water for five or 10 minutes and you tread water you have to keep your hands out of the water, water uh, above uh, your hands, <laughs> wrist, wrist high. So it's all foot action. You're, just, you're, just, you're basically, you're egg beating as yeah. hard as you can for five or 10 minutes. And it's sure. hard to do. Uh, it's I can imagine. really hard to do. And on classes, typically a majority of people wash up, not wash up. Uh, you get three attempts at it. I didn't get my first step. I said, that sucks so hard. I'm, you know, I'm, we're back in hell week. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to yeah. quit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but otherwise, dive phase was was very it was great. I loved it. Mm-hmm. So very after relaxed. after graduating buds, where'd you go from there? 
I was immediately assigned to SEAL Team 5. Okay. And is that in uh, California? Something called, something called SEAL Tactical Training, which is they, they take, they, they understand, you know, the basics of safety. Sure. But this, the SEAL instructors, uh, all of whom are veterans and all, most of whom have been under fire, hmm. um, train you how, you know, how, this is what we're really going to do. This is the real stuff now. Did you this have, uh, did you still have some Vietnam vets around back then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, what a bunch of assholes. Sorry. <laughs> what a bunch of beef. Um, they were, they actually were harder and more and more challenging than the buds instructors. Mm-hmm. And, with, and when I think back with good reason, especially now, I mean, right now the people going into the teams for the first time, um, all their staff are going to be instructors that were, you know, in Bagram, in yeah. Helmand, in uh, Fujaira, you know, pick the place. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not, not Fujaira, um, Fallujah. Fallujah. Fujaira yeah. is a different city. Jabil yeah. <laughs> Ali, uh, known for its, its nightlife and its drinking. Um, very different. Well, they've probably been there too, though. <laughs> probably. So they're, they're likely to be teaching their students the same lessons that we were taught by the Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, mean, I was an STT. I was there for a couple, a couple three months, about halfway through, and they yanked me out, and they stuck me in hotel platoon from SEAL Team 5, which was going through an accelerated um, deployment cycle in order to get to Desert Storm. Okay. Is, is SEAL Team 5, is that Virginia or is that California? California. California. Okay. That must have been so, a little exciting, though, to... Uh... Uh, yeah. In, in reality, uh, the old one... At, at least the concept, the concept the, of, of a yeah. quick workup. It, it was, so it, it was exciting in, in theory. In practice, there was a lot of hurry up and wait. Okay. which exactly mirrored our experiences in theater because, as you may recall, we, mm-hmm. we spent months building up the forces in Kuwait, mm-hmm. and most of the SEALs that were in Desert Storm um, did, we did a lot of reconnaissance operations, but it wasn't, it sure. wasn't the World War III that everybody was expecting with chemical warfare. Yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We, we called yeah. it a live... Most people that went called it a live fire exercise in the end. Yeah. A very expensive, very, very large live fire. Now, that's there's a handful of people, relatively speaking, that mm-hmm. saw direct infantry combat. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them did not. Yeah. My, my brother-in-law was actually over there in the Marine Corps. He was a mechanic for a motorized artillery battalion. So, mm-hmm. so he had interesting times all that time, too. And, and back then, there was no social media. There was, you had CNN, but you got your daily briefing from Norman. And that was about all you got to know what was really going on over there. So. So that so that deployment was fairly fairly uneventful. Um, I went to SEAL Team Three next, and that's where I was sent to Somalia. So okay. I was in Somalia for Operation Restore Hope of Black Hawk Down fame. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but you were uh, I wasn't in as part of the platoon. I was sent in. I was sent as a single person to okay. be a part of the advance party and staff for. I can't remember what the name of the organization was. Um, I think General Johnson was a three-star commanded. Restore hope, the okay. military part of it for the first few months, okay. and underneath him was something called the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, which was run by an Air Force One star, mm-hmm. and he had one each of every flavor of special operations as both liaison and sort of, you know, his his four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in practice, what that meant is, since there was no air war to speak of, mm-hmm. we uh, I integrated with part of Tenth Mountain. And with part of, uh, was it 13th Mew? And I would go out and I would go out and operate with them and do stuff. Okay. 
So was that, that was pre JSOC days. You were kind of in a little bit of, you know, special operations JSOC early, you know, before all that really happened or was that right around when well, they were so, building? So JSOC existed. Remember JSOC yeah. is different from SOCOM. Oh, um, that's what SOCOM. I'm thinking of. That's what I was thinking of was SOCOM, I think. I'm uh, sorry. But SOCOM was just starting up and finding okay. its feet yeah. um, and discovering the amazingness that is basically an open-ended uh, checkbook. <laughs> yeah. So, um, then I came back and I, I did a few more deployments as a SEAL platoon commander, also Team 3. Okay. And then I went from there to be a, um, uh, I had orders to go to the DEA to what was then classified, but is now unclassed, called Operation Snowcap, which was the DEA interdiction efforts of the upper Wyagi Valley, Wyaga Valley in uh, South America. So where the three rivers come together and the precursor chemicals flow up mm -hmm. and the, the raw coca flows down sure. uh, and sure. then north. And and language skills would obviously have been a benefit there as well, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, the, being a Spanish speaker was, a, was certainly a factor. And I wasn't very excited about those orders because I wanted to do the next thing. And through, uh, long story short, uh, I ran afoul of the military bureaucracy that is in charge of determining what a person's orders and career steps will be. <laughs> and it, was, it ended up being a comedy of errors where we sold our house had to break the contract, move back into our house, um, sit in our thumbs for a long time, be wow. told that I was going to be uh, going to law school, hmm. uh, not that, not full law school, but the Navy equivalent, the JAG okay. piece, uh, and getting so fed up with the process um, that ended with a set of orders to Guam. That sounds and lovely. And the last three guys that got those orders had all gotten the orders and said, oh, I'm not, and they quit. Yeah. And I read about what that place was like and what it was for. And I said, ah, I'm out and I quit. And I went to civilian life. Yeah. Okay. Where did you fit in your training command deployment in there? You said you, you, you were a BUDS instructor for a while. Where oh, yeah. Sorry. That was, that was between team three and going to the DEA. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, that, and that was actually the most stressful job I ever had in the Navy. Really? Really? Oh, Why so? by far, far and away. Uh, when you're a SEAL platoon commander, which is the best job in the Navy, <laughs> and this is before cell phones and, and before instant on satellite communications or 24 seven, mm. you were, you were the last of the independent commanders. Remember when back in the day, you know, Horatio Hornblower, CS Forrester, they'd give the officer in charge of the ship orders mm -hmm. and they'd yep. say, proceed from Plymouth Harbor on or about, you know, 18, August of 1812 and proceed to the Isthmus of Panama there to contact the native populations, conduct cartography, and such offensive operations against the Portuguese and Spanish as you are afforded return mm -hmm. not later than four years from now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So the orders are kind of like that. Mm -hmm. you, get, you, you get all your stuff and you were independent. You had your own vehicles, you had your own aircraft, you had your own people, all your own ammunition, and they just send you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, go do this. And you'd check in every month or two. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> you, you'd go to military planning conferences and there'd be, a general, a general, a colonel, a general, and then a Navy O3. Yeah. That'd be me. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was really good stuff. But then you go to, to the schoolhouse and all of a sudden, not only is your commanding officer literally two doors down, but sure. his boss, the field admiral is one building over. And, and he can likes watch to you and see what's going on. And can watch you run the trainees ragged and all that kind of thing. And yeah, and it, yeah. it's very high profile. We, mm -hmm. I, I personally hosted, but the command generally hosted, a number of celebrities. We had Paul Zahn from Good Morning America come in and do a whole week 
with us, which sure. was horrible. Mm-hmm. She, she was lovely. The experience of being preparing for her and supporting that evolution was horrible. She yeah. was perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, I had close encounters with other celebrities um, because seals were getting a lot of press at the time. Sure, sure. Um, uh, Demi Moore, I spent a day walking her around. <laughs> oh, that again, was back in the time of her movie, wasn't it? I mm-hmm. suppose, yeah. Again, yeah. She, she was lovely. The experience yeah. was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever heard of Paul Mitchell, the hair salon guy? Sure, sure. So his son wanted to be a seal. So he went, he, somebody he knew, knew somebody, and they got, they got a visit. And so this 17-year-old walks up, perfectly fit, but mm-hmm. long, luxurious, butt-length blonde <laughs> hair. I mean, he's using daddy's hair products. Sure, sure. And well, seals are known for their hair product use as well, right? I mean. Right, right. It's a perfect yeah. fit. <laughs> um, but, uh, I said, you know, the day one, week one, when you go to class, you shave your head down to skin. And he went, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. What? And I said, yeah, let me show you what they look like. And I walked him over to first phase and he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he turned around and walked away and never came back. No, he was, he was a very well-behaved young man. You know, he's in a, he's, he's probably a 40 year old now. Okay. Um, yep. And he's probably thanking his lucky stars. He didn't make that mistake. Yeah. Well, um, definitely to yeah. corroborate what you said, I, I followed uh, Jocko Willink, who I think you said you knew and probably mm-hmm. worked with, I'm guessing, at some point or another. And well, Again, peripherally, we never deployed together. Yeah. Um, yep. Jocko yep. is such a media personality. That, of course, now everybody knows who he is. Yeah. But I mean, he's always said that was his, his favorite job was being a platoon commander and then task unit commander and things like that oh, as well. Was, best job in the Navy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping over uh, lots of details because the that's just the first eight years. And, and frankly, I've been out of the Navy for twice as long as I was in it. Sure, sure. I was, How, I was in the Navy for a total of 12 years. Yeah, I'll admit it's probably a little bit of fanboy part on my kind of, because I, I love, I, I wish that I, now that you talk about being in the surface Navy, that's probably where I would have probably ended up. And so I'm almost kind of glad I didn't based off of your description there. But um, I had a lot of family trying to convince me to take that route and so, but, it's, but I do love not, the job that, that SEALs do and, and that kind of thing. So, but if, if I could have stayed in doing mm-hmm. SEAL stuff, yeah, I would have stayed in. Um, but I also got some visibility into more senior officers that had to go do disassociated staff tours or unassociated staff tours, mm-hmm. um, like at the Pentagon, for example, and sure. they were miserable, miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my very good friends as a Navy, is now a Navy captain. When I first met him, it was my first day as a platoon commander. And I should have, <laughs> I rolled in the door at SEAL Team 3, my very first day. And of course, I got there early and I, and I, I go to chat with the XO and his name was Tom Bunce. So he morning, sir, Lieutenant Massa check and says, ah, welcome, welcome, Lieutenant Massa. Um, we're about to have officers call. Why don't you join us? I said, of course, sir. I work here now. Mm-hmm. So I, I walk in and I don't, I don't know hardly anybody. I know a couple familiar faces from when I was a student, like, you know, a few waves. And officer's call is the is the 20 minute or 30 minute meeting where the executive officer of the command says, here's what we're doing today. And here's what each of you are supposed to be focusing on today, this week, and this month. Sure. And anybody that has problems or exceptions, they mention it. And then at half past, you go downstairs and you, everybody get, works out together. Okay. And he says, oh. And so he goes through his top of mind things. He goes, oh, we're also we're joined, in addition, Lieutenant Massa, formerly from SEAL Team 5, uh, will be joining the, the, uh, the wardroom. And Lieutenant Massa is going to be the student officer for golf platoon. And every officer, it's only officers in the room, 
started laughing like they were going to throw up. They, they kind of like, oh, that's not a good sign. That's not good. Because the, the, the platoon I was getting uh, had a reputation. Uh, and in know. fact, Lieutenant Master, you're authorized to skip PT today. And I went, huh? I need you to get into your wife's. Uh, two of your boys got caught uh, DUI and, and uh, reckless and drunken disorderly. And you got to go get them out of jail. And I'm like, and the, and the other officers are like, ha, 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 sucker. Yep. So I went down and I bailed out uh, two young, very young third class petty officers. They just, they just put their crow on. Oh, man. And um, Not um, both great guys. And yeah. it turns out one of them was really, really good. And that was, I had, I, I ran golf platoon through two deployments. We deployed twice together. Okay. It's great. Okay. It's very rare to get, to be able to do that twice. And mm-hmm. I was so impressed with one of them that I, I suggested, strongly suggested, and he reluctantly went along and then became more enthusiastic. But we got his semen admiral package in, which is they take high performing yep. enlisted sailors. That was Andy. Yes. Yep. Andy Stone. And he, and, he, and he got it and he made it and he's now a four striker. He's an 06. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So he, not only did he, he succeed, he succeeded beyond all measure. Crazy. And I'm very proud of the small part that I played um, That's in, awesome. in encouraging him initially because he, he earned it on his own merits. He's a hell, of a hell of an officer, hell of an operator, and all around good guy. Okay. How was your family during this time? You had one child early in college and did you have more after that? I, we, had three, we had three sons. Okay. And as every naval officer's spouse will know, when you have a deployed mm-hmm. spouse, let alone a spouse who's a SEAL, they're just never home. Yeah. Even when you're working up for deployment, you really can't practice doing SEAL stuff in the city. Mm-hmm. So you're gone easily three quarters of the time that you're sure. supposed to be in, you know, a sh- non-deployed. So you're, you're basically deployed all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the joke used to be, uh, that the kids had to get used to the stranger that would come back every Friday night with a uh, <laughs> with beer breath and a, a rucksack full of dirty laundry, mm-hmm. and then you, then they terrorize the kids Saturday Sunday and then you're gone again on Monday. Sure, sure. And that leads. Well, I've heard the divorce rate something yeah. like ninety percent or something for seals. So I don't think it's that high. It certainly is. It is un- unhelpfully high, yeah. uh, and it's it reflects the struggle um, between staying married and and. Um, interacting with your spouse and your family, which your family and your spouse richly deserve, mm-hmm. and doing your job. Mm-hmm. So it's, remember I mentioned that, you know, I said surface warfare uh, eats their own. Mm-hmm. That's true of the military in general, especially for people in the first part of their careers where it's just an accepted fact of life. You're not going to have much of a home life. Sure, sure. Um, and it gets worse because even when you go to a shore command, which means in the Navy, you're not on a ship and therefore gone all the time. Um, most short commands are super high stress. God forbid you should be a recruiter. Recruiters and drill instructors and instructors in general have the highest divorce and suicide rates anywhere in the military that I can recall. I I can't provide you a citation, but I do know that it's very, very high and higher than average for the military. Why do you think that is? Because the stress is overwhelming. Um, You're not home, not really, because you're always at work. And I'll give you an example. So a Bud Students Day in first phase, um, the first official evolution is at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. to 5 o'clock PT. And then their last evolution might end, might be at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Well, long before they ever show up and well after they leave, the staff is, is pre-briefing and debriefing. Sure. So if they've got 5 o'clock PT, you're there at 4. If they go home at 10, you go home at midnight. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, it's very high stress. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. And it's, and it's worse for, um, for, I think, for drill instructors because they're, not, they're dealing with raw recruits versus yeah. uh, people who've already been through a you've, bit of the mill. You've at least been through a little bit in the Navy pipeline or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're, you had your three boys at this point. You know, what, uh, well, we are getting, we are coming up on an hour here if you want to. Right. We can do that. Well, let me, look, I'll, I'll basically touch, I'll, I'll blend the rest together until we get to where I'm currently. And that is that I okay. transitioned to the commercial world and I went to what was then Big Six, now is Big Four Consulting. I went to a big company called KPMG. Gotcha. Yep. yep. And I worked, um, I was, admit, this is the 1990s. Uh, the internet boom was just lifting off. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends were leaving the military and trying to sell dog food on the internet and become overnight millionaires. Um, I needed, I didn't know much about tech. And so I went through the technology apprenticeship program at KPMG, where they run you through a series of boot camps, boot camp again, on how to program, how to run a network, what is computer security. And I ended up working in a, uh, like a typical um, management consultant, but on the technology side of things. Gotcha. And I transitioned from that to a startup, which went bust. And from there, um, I don't, well, think, you're the, <laughs> I don't oh, think you're I was, alone. I don't think you're alone in that.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I launched my own firm. So my, myself and two partners uh, launched a uh, Department of Defense consultancy where we were doing similar things, but for the DOD. Hmm. And that became very successful and did that for about five years, uh, sold the firm and uh, went to a large investment bank based in uh, London, New York, and Frankfurt. Okay. And uh, uh, sharp listeners will know which one it is because only a few that have that that <laughs> trifecta. And I ran a big chunk of their corporate security and business continuity function, and I okay. ran the intelligence function for the bank globally. Okay, all right. So even more travel. Yeah. Um, but I I went from having visited some fifty countries, and I think my passport at that time I had <laughs> 90, 96 or ninety seven countries I've been to at that point. Yeah, uh, because it's a global investment bank, and so and if you're running a an overhead function, not a trader, and I was not a trader, um, you end up going to a lot of places wherever the bank has a financial interest. Sure, sure. And that was you know, a highlight of that time was uh, dealing with the 2008 um, Mumbai terror attack. Okay, so gotcha. my bank uh, at the time had about 4,000 employees in Mumbai. Okay. Well, I should say in India generally, not actually in Mumbai, in Mumbai, mm-hmm. it's a very large, almost a hundred thousand person company. Um, a dirty little secret of the, of the investment banking and financial services world is that almost all financial transactions are terminated and resolved in India. Really? Okay. Because it's cheaper. Okay. So think That's about, it. you know, think about the tens of thousands of trades that happen every hour, or, uh, every hour across all the various, hmm. um, um, stock exchanges. Okay. Those all have to be reconciled at the end of the day. You know, to close the trading day, sure. they take all those transactions and they run them against what is a, a bill of accounting to see what everybody's position is. Sure. And that's why when you make a trade, they say, we think you made this much money, but until mm-hmm. we confirm the trade and resolve it, we're not going to tell you, give you a final number. This number is an approximation because there's yeah. people who are manually doing that. Well, they have tools, but they're, they're checking each one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cheaper in India, where there's a large number, relatively speaking, of low cost, high education 
workers. Sure. sure. And when uh, Lakshmi Al Taiba or LET rolled into Mumbai, in addition to the roughly 4,000 staff we had there, we had 184 travelers. Okay. And of course, they hit they hit beautiful luxury hotels. Well, what do luxury hotels do? They host <laughs> events. They host events for VIPs. Mm-hmm. And sure shooting, we had a we had a, a couple of large events ongoing in the targets, the Taj and the Oberoi, that were hit by, by bad guys. Wow. And the bad guys um, took them hostage. And okay. the first thing that happened, it, it just so happened the guy that was working with me that would have otherwise taken the phone call was on leave. Okay. And his backup and my boss were both in an airplane. So it's one of those things that happens. You know, the chain of command continues. I was temporarily at the top of the food chain, so I got a, a text. I was wearing multiple devices like you do, mm-hmm. and I got a text that afforded me from the security operations center in Hong Kong mm-hmm. um, because that was closest to the travelers, and it said, help, I've been shot, and um, I think I'm being robbed, and I'm in the, I'm in the Taj Hotel. <laughs> and that's pretty serious, so it got my attention. I'm looking at it, and my other device goes off, and it's an email being forwarded from someone else saying, we're getting reports of gunfire and a bomb going off, and a party being shot up for our people in it at the Oberoi. And I went, huh? And I, and I, 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 I we have a, what amounts to, what you would call it in a worship, you call, um, you would call it combat information central. But for us, it's just mm-hmm. a really large conference room, lots of screens and, and lots yeah. of paper maps. And I pulled up the map of Mumbai and mm-hmm. I have, you know, we have little flags where we have um, concentrations of people. And I right. went, Taj, Oberoi, that's 12 kilometers, timestamps three seconds apart. That's a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's nothing else it can be. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of big organizations, there's a number of processes that are built. And my bank loved its processes. Their process <laughs> and when there's a major catastrophic event, like a 9-11 style event, of mm-hmm. which my organization was a survivor, there's a mechanism you can use to call every single person of significance in your corporation to the phone simultaneously sure. with an imperative saying, come to the phone or else. Okay. And my boss is out of, everybody's out of position. And I went, I slapped the big metaphorical red button yeah. and it yeah. launches a really big combination video and conference call and, and very rapidly, but slower than I, I hoped people mm-hmm. begin coming on the phone. Okay. The CEO, the COO, the entire C-suite, the regional heads of trading, the global heads of trading, Come on, everybody. And they're like, what's going on? I said, we, I'm, I'm waiting another two minutes and I'm, I'm going to give you the brief one time and we'll go from there. Hmm. So we got, enough, we got critical mass and I gave the quick briefing and uh, it was a moment of high drama because one of the things that was happening is the terror. We were, I was getting a live feed from the people that were trapped because they had their, they had their personal devices. Sure. So one of the things that was happening was they were looking for British and American passport holders. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we can imagine them for, and Israeli yeah. passport holders as well. Yep. Yep. And uh, I said, we have to immediately push to all of our travelers that this is happening so that they can gauge for themselves whether they want to try to escape or if they want to surrender. Because mm-hmm. it's really clear why this is happening. Yep. And I said, and the other thing that's happening is we know we have 184 travelers. I'm only getting responses from about half of them. And we know that they're in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And we know the hotel's on fire getting shot up and there's explosions. So we have to accept that we likely have casualties, yeah. which is a whole different, it's a whole, and of course the lawyers begin losing their minds. You can't say that. I'm like, <laughs> I am saying it because have you looked at TV in the last two minutes? Yeah. Yeah. That's our people. 
Yep. Um, you know, you can't you can't speculate. That's huge liability. I'm like, no, I'm telling you, it's happening. There's no way that we don't know it's happening. You can't pretend you don't know it's happening because that's in the banking world and legal world. If someone late after the fact can prove that you knew something and then yeah. didn't take yeah. action, yep. that introduces liability in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I said, but back to my first point, we had to decide with the people that were in touch, do we tell them that this is happening? And well, oh no, we can't tell them that. I said, well, if we don't tell them that, and it's a matter of record that we knew, there's your liability right there. And they went, oh, hur, hur. yeah. And yeah. <laughs> the second, the second most senior man on the call speaks up. So he would have been the chief operating officer or chief financial officer. I forget which. Okay. And he had a very heavy accent and he spoke kind of rapidly. So I couldn't tell who it was. He was basically challenging my statement. And I was kind of mad. I'm like, this is black and white. How could we not tell them? And he, he and I said, who is this? And I was kind of angry. I kind of leaned into the phone and he, he, he very deliberately stressing each syllable says my, and he, this wasn't his name. He goes, my name is Jonathan William Smith. And I'm like, Oh shit. I don't know who that, is. that wasn't his name. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, respectfully, we know that this is happening. There's no way that we, and we have a moral imperative. And I, and I suspect a legal imperative to let our staff, make the decision if they're going to try to escape or not. It's up to them. We can't tell them to take the risk. Sure. We have to inform them. Yeah. And he yeah. goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to do that. You make you know, do that right now, right away. And I'll, I'll take the call and come back when you're done. Okay. So we did. That's but interesting. How that can learn. Yeah. I mean, lesson, you know, we were set up basically to deal with a crisis that lasted half an hour, an hour, and then it was over, right? Mm -hmm. uh, an airplane crash, um, a tsunami, you know, something that happens and it's done. Yeah. And as yeah. it turns out, that was a four day event. Okay. Yeah. And it stressed every, everything in the bank was built around a 24 hour cycle. Yeah. So we, it, 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 it brought home how important it was to have a crisis management and a business continuity function hmm. in a way that 9-11 had not. Okay. Uh, the bank had been very successful in 9-11 because they had a robust program and they were able to, they were conducting yeah. trades from their backup location 31 minutes after the first plane hit the North Tower. Gotcha. Okay. So they were the nightmare scenario for a bank, an investment bank, is to be out of the market when everybody else is still trading. That's sure, how you lose sure. billions of dollars in, mm -hmm. in minutes. Mm -hmm. And so continuity of operations is is your financial lifeblood. Sure. Um, but the 24 hour cycle is clearly inadequate. And then later we had another big event, which was the swine flu pandemic of 2011, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a matter of great concern. Interestingly, Funny, fun fact. So <laughs> swine flu was vastly less lethal than COVID-19, okay. much less lethal. It was one or two orders of magnitude more transmissible. Okay. 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 Gotcha. And over the, over the lifespan of that disease, something like three or 4 million people have died from it. But because that took a decade, hmm. it never really reached the level of crisis that drove a new cycle. Sure. It's a few, sure. What's a few thousand here, a few thousand there, right? You know, at a yeah. time or something. So, yeah. So Anyhow, that, that so obviously that, that, played a part in your later writing, all of that investment. It did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> We'll get to that later, but that's kind of a prequel <laughs> of, of part two of our discussion, I think. But uh, that's, a, that's just that amazing. Was, I mean, uh, that was an example of the, the kind of experience that I had in the commercial corporate world. Okay. And uh, however, it, 
like the Navy, it required an immense amount of travel. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, not conducive to having a better balanced home life. Uh, I had children. Uh, my two youngest were, were in high school, uh, building their, you know, getting ready for going to university. And uh, we'd gone California, New York, New York, London, London, New York in the space of four years. And then they wanted me to relocate to, to uh, Germany. I said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, the job's going to go to Germany. You can be with the job or not. I said, let's talk about a package. And I got out. Yeah. And I, I, I say that matter of factly, but every time I've changed careers, whether it be from the, the Navy to corporate life, um, being an employee to being an owner, uh, selling the business and going back into a whole new sector of financial services and required a sort of reinvention. Sure. Um, a readiness to not throw it all away, but to radically change course and direction and apply yourself to learning a new set of skills. Where do you think, where do you think that comes from? Where do you think you got that from? I don't know where I got it from. I know that it's something that is common to the special operations community. Flexibility. Where, uh, once, you know, you're initially selected on the basis of toughness, stubbornness, teamwork, and patriotism. Mm-hmm. But in your first year or two, uh, there's still attrition that takes place. There's still people sure. who don't get their trident or, or get, get ranger called or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the number one predictor for success is your ability to, to learn very, very rapidly. Okay. To basically cram. You're, you're, you're cramming, but you're cramming for life. Sure, sure. And um, no one knows that they have that skill. I think a lot of folks can do that. But the, the cross-section of people that can do that and can also be stubborn and can also uh, be patriots, you know, be a patriot, and can also have a certain amount of indifference to discomfort, and who also can work well on teams. You're 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 narrowing your aperture, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I don't know where I learned that, but I was. I think it's just a quality that you can train to. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. And then what? so I went from there, and I'm I'm currently employed working for a really big. Uh, national level research university, and okay. I work on uh, projects related to uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning as they pertain to defensive cyber operations. Okay. okay. The, the speed with which adversaries can attack our infrastructure, can attack your bank account, mm-hmm. can tailor their attacks at the individual, most granular level, tailoring attacks against individual people for financial gain as well as for um, what's called information operations is not well understood by the public. Mm-hmm. And how to counter that is still not well enough developed. You know, defense mm-hmm. always lags the offense. Sure. Ever since uh, plate armor versus ring armor versus body armor with ceramic plates, right? Mm-hmm. Those defenses are in reaction to a new capability. Sure. There's always a lag. Yep. The yep. challenge right now is it used to be that weapon development cycles took place over the course of, if not centuries, then decades. You know, how long did it take to go from the first self-bow to a crossbow? Mm-hmm. And how long from a crossbow to a crude uh, arquebus? And how long from an arquebus to a breech-loading rifle? And how long from that to a self-loading rifle? And then how long from that to, and then it keeps going, right? Yep, yep. We're in a cycle now where um, digital... I think weapons makes it sound melodramatic. The mechanisms to affect change and impact on your target or your adversary mm-hmm. evolve on an hour to hour basis. Mm-hmm. 
if not more rapidly. Sure, sure. And it's and largely... the consequences are global and mm -hmm. still not well understood. Mm -hmm. And, and it... if, I had to, if I had to organize my career around a unifying theme, it would be personal, professional, organizational, and national resilience. Okay. How do we position ourselves to survive and thrive when the cycles and the waves of things that affect us are mm -hmm. accelerating in their velocity, not steady state or decreasing? And, and that is definitely, I think with all the connectivity in the world, that's doing nothing but accelerating. You know, just like you said, it's, it's definitely, the world is definitely a different place now than it was 15 years yeah. ago or 10 years ago. No doubt I'm about it. I'm skipping over uh, a lot of little things. I did a year as an um, independent consultant uh, working okay. with family offices, uh, which is I'm a billionaire ease for, um, I don't want to have my, my family's name on my storefront. So instead, I'm going to create <laughs> a family office that has my lawyers, accountants, uh, insurers, personal trainers, and security staff all working in a company for me. Oh, okay. And then I'll hire specialists as required. So I spent about a year uh, advising high net worth individuals, some companies and some family offices on uh, not just cyber resilience, but physical resilience. Sure, sure. It's great to um, reuse those, take the skills that you've got and kind of repurpose them for something different as well. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my favorite uh, was a, an American billionaire who, whose kids, uh, decisions kind of drove the death of, an, of a, a, a popular social group called Rich Kids of Instagram. Okay. Yep. Uh, this billionaire spent a lot of money to put together a really fabulous family vacation throughout the Caribbean and South America and security and, you know, traveling under aliases and private transportation and, <laughs> you know, he's quite wealthy. So everything was mm. catered and perfect. And his kids took that itinerary right down to the menu level and we're Instagramming it live, <laughs> which of course, if you're a billionaire is a big deal because yeah. you ever heard of a uh, uh, Kaspersky software? Yeah. So he's a, he's a Russian national, not a client of mine, never worked with him. Um, his kid, his son was kidnapped. Um, gosh, uh, 2009, 2010. Okay. By people that were tracking him on social media mm -hmm. and they held him for ransom. Uh, the kid was recovered sure. and uncharacteristically, usually when this happens, the family like goes completely quiet and pretends it never happened, thinking yeah. that's safe. Kaspersky took the opposite tack and he published an open letter, which is what we know so much about the event, detailing how it occurred, how, where they were vulnerable and what they're doing about it. Wow. Very, very unusual response. You say what you will about Kaspersky in business mm -hmm. and national terms. Yeah. In the sharing information as it pertains to the uh, kidnapping of the son, he did a huge service. Sure, and I would sure. use that as, a, as an example of how, yes, you are a target yeah. for real. You aren't so, and, and technology is evolving so rapidly that mm -hmm. uh, our civil adversaries, criminals, the ability of them to use technology to find their targets, to scale to their operations, what, what's within their capacity has improved so remarkably that it would, it would shock you to know. Yeah. And yeah, there are people imagine. that are desperate enough and poor enough that even mm -hmm. a person of modest means like yourself or myself are a viable target. Sure. Yeah. All things being equal. Uh, they still rather go after a, a, you know, a billionaire, obviously. So I'm not, sure I trust him. I'm not sure I trust him with my antivirus, but 
but yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> no, I, don't, I, I don't recommend that product. No, no, definitely not. So, all right. Well, you can obviously see we've got different shirts on. Mike and I had a little break in our recording because of obligations, commitments, and things like that. So uh, we're happy to get back together again and kind of deal with the second half of Mike's career or the segue. So this was roughly uh, when you were getting out of the corporate security, what year would that have been about roughly? It was, it's a gray line because I left um, my, my big employer, mm -hmm. the bank, and went into uh, independent consulting and worked with a couple of small firms. Oh, sure. Um, and then uh, after about a year, I was uh, employed by a big American research university and uh, I decided to return to a, uh, a technical area. So in this case, uh, cybersecurity and research, sure. as opposed sure. to the sort of um, broad spectrum, um, physical and personal and corporate and, and so forth. So okay. focusing much more on information security and risk management versus the more traditional guards and cards and drivers. How, how technical are you getting these days? Like writing code um, technical a, or project management or technical kind of sure. program type well, stuff? Um, it, the answer is I do a little bit of everything mm -hmm. uh, with an emphasis on the financial side, but I'm also participating um, with a threat and vulnerability analysis team actually right. looking at, um, at software and looking at platforms and highlighting um, important and previously undetected vulnerabilities. Uh, and it's a constant churn because the yeah. products are always being updated. New products are always coming out. These mm -hmm. systems are being launched. And increasingly, um, the software you get in the device doesn't come from the place that makes the device. It comes Sorry. from a manifold of places. In fact, some manufacturers even uh, draw on open source software for certain kinds of services that are in their devices. Or the services may actually be calling software that's not physically resident on the device. So they, they'll call for a cloud enabled service. You know, soft, um, software as a service basically, yeah. where yep. the software is yep. not resident on my phone, hmm. but when I need to use a plugin, it actually calls to you know, say a, a big cloud service, whether whoever's hosting it, AWS is a huge example, but by yep. no means the only yep. one. Yep. And so your security or the corporate security or the vulnerability is in a piece of software hosted on a piece of <laughs> hardware that you neither control nor have visibility into. And any of those libraries can have their own vulnerabilities built into it and 100%. that people, yeah. Yep, and yep. they could have even been created for that purpose. Yep, yep, exactly. And I, I see some of that in what I do because we sell enterprise data quality software that gets deployed to all of those different clouds as well as on-premise. So we have to deal with with corporate security audits and things like that of our software and and the fun that it, that that all entails depending on how active the corporate security department is and <laughs> well it's, it's interesting because um i won't say it's ruined cyberpunk sci-fi lit for me i'm okay. still a huge fan of, of that subgenre yeah. um and there are some some terrific stories that i've read and reread even though uh, the reality of today's cybersecurity environment and virtual mm -hmm. environment is nothing like, say, Mona Lisa Overdrive or Burning Chrome or um, 
Uh, I think the, the one that's come the closest to it uh, and still kept it interesting um, is, uh, God, what's it called? I think it's called, what's well, called uh, Reem D, R-E-A-M-D-E, um, okay. by uh, the same author that wrote um, Seven E's and oh, the Economicon okay. and oh, the sure, Great sure. Cycle. Yep, yep, yeah. Uh, guy named Stevenson. Yeah, I'm not a big necessarily cyberpunk reader, but I can, yeah, I can hum the tune he, sometimes. So he wrote, he actually yeah. was able to weave uh, information and cybersecurity into his Goliath novel and make it interesting. <laughs> but sure. in, in essence, he, he created a situation where the good guys and the bad guys had to meet in the context in the game of a, um, a massively multiplayer online free-to-play game that yep. also happened to have currency. So when the bad guys demanded money, they demanded money in the game. So a Ready Player One concept to somewhat also to to a different in a, from a different picture kind of thing. Ready Player One was was much more forward looking, where there was sort of a full body immersive suit yes. that one wore, and sure. you were you were projecting your consciousness into this matrix and everything you perceived you saw in the game. Yep. In the in the Stevenson novel that I'm referencing, uh, it's very much. Uh, there's people sitting at computers interacting with oh, the computer, okay. not it, not actually in an immersive, not that immersive. body suit okay. looking in a 3D virtual dome. Okay. So, so, and then this actually gets us to the point of this. Well, the biggest point of this conversation is talk about your writing and it let's, so let, I want to step back. The one question I thought of that I didn't ask while we were t talking about all your SEAL history and business career and things like that is, mm -hmm. You must have been a science fiction fantasy fan this whole time and been doing reading. Did you yeah. grow up with that, or how did you? I absolutely did. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a, a great um, uh, a great recent acquisition is I was able to find a hardback copy of the okay. very first science fiction book I ever read. I got it from a place called the Mission Hills Public Library. Nice. Uh, on or about nineteen. 79 or 1980 okay 81 perhaps i forget the exact date um and it was by no surprise bob heinlein and it was <laughs> called star beast okay and it was a bright yellow book hardback book with and the cover showed a sort of dinosaur with centipede legs True. and um, a boy riding on its back and a girl wearing like a gyrocopter flying overhead gotcha okay and i thought well that's interesting so I picked it up and I read it right there in, in the in the um, in the the uh, library and then uh, asked, "Are there more?" I took home a stack of his <laughs> uh, and that was the beginning. And so sure. I read I read everything he had and I began branching out from there. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I I didn't necessarily read sci-fi fantasy as much in high school as I did once I got into college, and I found this mm -hmm. big. I mean, I played D and D and all did all that geeky stuff, sure. but. Uh, I found this copy of Ray Feist magician in, mm. in uh, my college university library, just was walking by and saw it. It was one of those novels this big and just had the title magician on it. And for some reason just stood out to me. So I had to grab it and 30 books later in his series, that kind of thing. Well, I, I thought Heinlein's uh, the, the contraptions he postulated seemed ridiculous in a juvenile. There's yeah. one called um, space cadet. And in the very opening scene, there's a young man taking a slide walk and his phone rings and he fishes out of his pocket and he gets the phone. And I'm like, 
That's crazy. <laughs> you know what it would take? What kind of what you would need to make a, a phone work without a quartz? That's crazy talk. Where did you get your exactly. power from? Anyhow, yeah, uh, yep. he's he's remarkably prescient in many of his technical um, things he included. But I also read fantasy, and you yeah. probably read, um, you know, Sword of Shannara and the Elf mm-hmm. Stones of Shannara. Yep. Um, yep. And then there's the whole Dragonlance series. So yep. Yep. I, I branched out very rapidly and, and went in many directions. And of course, yep. Heinlein has you know, arguably one of the most definitive uh, fantasy novels of all time, Glory Road. Okay. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. So did you ever think back then of writing your own stories at all or not? Who doesn't think about that? Yeah. But at the same time, I thought there's, I, I don't <laughs> have the skills or the patience. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't do any writing um, professionally until my first contract, um, which was for a short story published by Bain. Yep. in the John Ringo zombie universe called Black Tide Rising. Um, yeah, I've got your, uh, the your CV on Amazon anthology. up right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was my very first story. And, and what had happened is I had, I had met John. Um, I wrote him after reading one of his novels uh, in the uh, Empire of Man series. The first one's called oh, okay. March Up Country. I strongly, yep. uh, un, unqualified recommendation to your yep. listeners to give that series a try. Yeah, I love that. Uh, really series. terrific. And I, I reached out to him and I thanked him because he included his personal email on the back of the books back then. Gotcha. And I and identified myself and gave him a bit of my work history. He said, if you're ever in San Diego, happy to buy you a beer. Hmm. And the very next Comic Con, he came out <laughs> and we met and we began chatting. And that was the time at which he was ideating and thinking about a novel series, which became uh, the Mike Harmon Ghost series. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I, uh, oh, Mike Harmon. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Not now notorious. Yeah. And he so, was bouncing some of the, the the ideas off of me, and I'm like, well, "What? Yeah, you would never do that. That's crazy." He's like, "Yeah, but if you had to, I'm like, well, I I would never want to try it, but this is how you could <laughs> maybe kind of do it." And uh, in any event, after uh, striking up a friendship and and um, going to a few Dragon Cons and, sure. and so forth, he asked if I was interested in submitting a story. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, if he were here, he'd, tell, he'd, he'd probably say, you know, I had low expectations. I thought I'd sort of basically type it out from the original crayon and fix all the grammar. <laughs> and uh, instead, he thought that it was a, a pretty good story. Well, you're and not a Marine, though. All, so. I mean, I think yeah. I got a Facebook message out of the blue from someone I'd only chatted with very briefly on casual things. Sure. And Tony Weisskopf, publisher, nice. Yeah. Main book said, I'd like to see a proposal. And I, I went, uh, uh sure of course sure mm-hmm. and that led in short order to getting uh, a proposal to co-write in john's universe mm-hmm. uh, originally one and then then two novels yeah uh, and since then i've um, you must have obviously consulted on the whole you must have consulted on the whole black tide rising though i'm guessed to be able to give the bank of the americas perspective uh, a little bit yes although he he began writing that series uh before i began in, long before i Oh, okay. Uh, had a okay. chance to, to pen to paper for the story. But okay. one of the characters that I think he borrowed heavily from um, is not unlike the role that I had uh, <laughs> for one of my, you know, my big bank employer. I had an office uh, right there. On, we, we always think about Wall Street being chock full of banks. The reality is at the time there were three banks left on Wall Street. And I think oh, there's only two. Sure. Yeah. Mellon Bank of New York and of course the Stock Exchange. But I think my the bank that I was employed by has since left Wall Street and changed their address. Okay. Um, most of the banks are in Midtown, like J.P. Morgan, uh, Bank of America, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So you had the proposal request from Tony, and were you kind of jumping up and down at this point, or I, or? I was, yeah, I was very, <laughs> I was thrilled. Um, I did a very manly tippy toe dance. There were definitely no yells of enthusiasm, um, and and we were off. And yeah. uh, I had a chance to work very closely with John. I flew to Chattanooga a couple times, and uh, spent long weekends writing and collaborating uh, over coffee. Stacked a lot of coffee cups at a really terrific uh, cafe in Chattanooga called Rembrandt, right there on the River Bluff. Okay. And that's all my friends in Chattanooga. Sure, sure. Yeah. And um, then began, of course, writing outside John's universe. And I, I've uh, written an anthology edited by Larry Correa, Mike Williamson, mm-hmm. Tom Crapman, Peter yep. Nealon, uh, Rob Hansen, uh, and a handful of, I'm uh, probably forgetting, uh, Casey Azell. Uh, like, did you say Mike Williamson? Freeholders. I think I mentioned Mike. Yep. It was one of the first ones I mentioned. Yeah. Oh, sure. I've yep. contributed two stories um, in his um, uh, freehold universe. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yep. Uh, How's it feel going? My, my largest word count by store and by story count, I've written now five short stories, been published five short stories in the John Ringo Black Tide um, series for which the fans have a, not for my writing specifically, but they love that universe. They want to see more of those characters. They love, they love what John's done. And in part is because John took that genre and turned it on its ear. Mm -hmm. And I tried very hard to stay faithful to that, where it's Mm -hmm. not so much about the death and destruction. It's about how people work to overcome the obstacles. It's a thinking person's um, apocalypse. So instead of having people making endlessly bad decisions, you know, the the horror slasher <laughs> film where the heroine runs, she's trying to escape and she runs into a shed, selects the shed full of hanging hooks and knives and chainsaws. Yeah. Why would you go in there? It's like, yeah. and, and instead the, the heroines and heroes make really good decisions. And yeah. when they make a bad one, they change the decision and they try and do the right thing. And they have a moral center too, I think as well. Oh, absolutely. There's yeah. lines they won't cross. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and they're, and they're, while they're very strong, they each have a fragile element. They're not superhuman. Sure, sure. And I so, see. And, you I, and I really appreciated that it was, in yeah. the end, an uplifting story, uh, a ser- series. In fact, uh, the third installment, the third anthology, is called "We Shall Rise," hmm. and the theme is how are the survivors working together to turn this around? And that's it's, not out yet, uh, right? We, I don't we think we reached the nadir, and we're beginning to wax. And so, what's What's on the upslope? How do people collaborate? Mm-hmm. And the stories that I've written in John's universe, uh, be, you know, they, they kind of go grim, funny, grim, funny. <laughs> of course, this is the fifth one. And we're, back, we're back to, frankly, a bit grim. But I tried to address the question of what are people going to use for currency? Sure, sure. And what is that currency backed by? And the, and the, the real answer is and for some period of time, there's going to be a very heavily um, barter-based economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things are, can you trade? The whole, yeah. the whole function of money is to carry value across time. Mm-hmm. So you can't use milk as a currency because it spoils and goes bad. The same is true of most foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can, and there's only so much scavenging one can do. So one of the things that I came up with is I was going to suggest that coffee might be an, a fairly non-perishable good of universal value, which could be traded. And if not, you know, you know, we wouldn't walk around with 60 pounds of coffee on your shoulder, but maybe 
your currency is based by a basket of goods, all of which have universal value. Okay. So that's so kind of how a dollar for a pound of coffee yep. or for double D batteries or for, you know, one ampule of ampicillin or, or, mm -hmm. or. Have you read Steve Sterling's Dies of Fire series at all? I, I read the first three books in the series. Okay. Um, and then it, it kind of moved from being an apocalypse recovery story yeah. to being a very heavily influenced by sort of magic and fantasy. Yeah. And you kind of, and that didn't hit you. While so I was, I like both those genres. I, I wasn't able to survive. My interest didn't survive the change from yeah. sort of hard boiled, uh, based in hard, you know, in fact, to now magic has a place. Yeah. Yeah. And I made it a little bit further. I, I liked most of the series, except probably the last couple books kind of took it a little bit off, off the reservation, I think kind of a mm. thing, but for the last few books, my, just my, yeah. my thinking was heavily influenced by my exposure and my appreciation for Eric Flint's 1632 universe, okay. where okay. it, what amounts to a magical event as you, as you know, transports a chunk mm -hmm. of the uh, American Southeast Yep. into 15th century central Europe. Mm -hmm. And from that point, once that temporal displacement occurs, however it occurs, yep. um, everything else that follows is physics as we know it. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, e it's economics and engineering and physics and politics and warfare. Sure. And that's what I was kind of expecting in the Steve Sterling universe. Yeah. And then it took yeah. that sort of side direction into yeah a very interesting and well thought out mythology but yeah i was expecting something different so yeah the reason that, the reason i brought it up is just that barter economy that you talked about there, there are some specific sections in there talking about well i can only carry so much flour i can only carry so many things with me to barter and trade so what do i do right. how do i deal with that and 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 this so does gold go back to being a standard unit of currency mm -hmm. because there's in John's universe, uh, something like 90% of the world's population is dead. Yeah. Yep. And so and <laughs> there's a whole lot of gold already available. So why would it be valuable? Mm -hmm. You can't eat gold. And other than its intrinsic value, as we, as we think of it, in a low technology world, gold is remarkably not useful. Other than maybe for fillings for your teeth. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Or maybe if you're doing simple uh, electrical stuff, it's a great conductor. Yeah. Yep. And that's about it. Yep. So that's how you come up, you came up with your ideas was just, you tried to find a, well, I'll let you describe it rather than me trying to. Well, in, in, in my case, um, I began thinking of what are people going to run out of first? You know, <laughs> after you've done the initial sort of scour your immediate area for things you can um, scavenge. Yep. Yep. So you'd kind of pick an after area of the country of time, or the world. You to go bad, right? Yeah, so would you pick an area of the country be... or the world? Sorry? Would you pick an area of the country or the world? Oh, if to... I had to? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So well, I no, like no, no. I areas. mean, for your stories, do you do you start with that or do you start with the, I'm running out of X? Was that your kind of, when you're, for your story well, concept? Since I was, I was writing in an established universe, I had to stay within uh, the lifelines of where the action sure. was taking place or could credibly be taking place. Sure. And yeah, good point. Um, I also, because I had, the, I had the, the honor to write those two novels with John, um, I had a lot more time to talk about the universe with him and get a much deeper understanding and see a lot of his unpublished 
notes to and research <laughs> for himself. So yeah. I, had, I had a bit of an unfair advantage. Yeah, um, true. But uh, not a bad it thing. was straightforward to select a place where his the characters in the mainline novels had already passed through. In this mm-hmm. case, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Mm-hmm. Sure. And anybody who's been in the military or been a cop or a paramedic um, or a firefighter knows that coffee is an essential good. It's not, it's, <laughs> it really isn't, op- you have to have it, right? <laughs> and anybody who's been drinking coffee long enough probably is acquainted with at least one person who takes their coffee really seriously. Yeah. Yep. You know, to the point of fanaticism, the water has to be purified and, and decalcified just so at a certain temperature mm-hmm. and the grounds to be certain particulate size. They have to be sourced from a single plantation high in, in the Jamaican mountains, on the, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And as it turns out, um, other than instant coffee, which has a fairly long shelf life, if you can stomach it, mm-hmm. coffee actually goes bad within a few years, especially okay. if it hasn't already been stored, harvested, dried, and stored a certain way. Yeah. Um, you can store beans. It's called uh, keeping the beans pre-roasted but post-drying. is called keeping them in the green. Okay. And you can put them in a sisal bag with the right temperature and humidity and they'll sit okay for a couple of years, but not indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And if you're in Guantanamo, then you're actually within reach of the, one of the places where coffee actually got its start in the Western hemisphere. Um, After the um, revolt of the enslaved peoples of Haiti, uh, the French plantation owners who've been kicked off the Island. So where can we go next to get coffee going? And they went to Cuba. Awesome. Yeah. And okay. specifically the southeast corner of Cuba, which is also where Guantanamo Bay happens to be. Yep. Yep. And so one of our one of our characters is a sort of a coffee nerd, and he knows that. <laughs> and he says, you know, we're about 30 miles away from where coffee got its real start. Yeah. And they actually have, and it's it's true, they actually you just have gotta go museums, through the minefields the to get there. <laughs> of, of coffee. Sorry? Just gotta go through the minefields to get there or go around, I guess. But uh, a quick side note, uh, my son was stationed in Guantanamo Bay uh, okay. for security. And while the, the minefields are still there, the American mines have all been cleared. Okay. Um, the ones on the other side of the wire either, are both neither cleared nor are they up to date. <laughs> okay. So, so um, <laughs> getting through them would be, would be a good time. Yeah. Of course, in the, in the fictional world, the zombies have done a lot of that for you. Sure. Yep. Sort of wandering around and... You know, each zombie is a, a single-use mine disposal unit. Mm, Polish mine detector type role. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, I also saw you just had a new book come out fairly recently in the Kane Royarden universe as well. I did. I wrote a novella uh, in Chuck Gannon's Kane Royarden universe. Um, okay. it, it takes, for the readers who are familiar with the universe, um, and without giving any spoilers away or too many spoilers, um, in the midpoint of his novel series, we learn that um, aliens have kidnapped, if you will, soldiers from uh, conflicts on Earth mm-hmm. uh, where they perceived that those soldiers were going to have died anyhow. Okay. And so their removal or their body snatching would not really occasion too much comment. So sure. think plane crashes, uh, submarine and ship sinkings, mm-hmm. um, massive battles where the casualties are never discovered because the destruction is too great. Sure. And those people um, find themselves a couple hundred years in the future. Gotcha. 
but with no with no sort of breaking period to explain why that occurs. <laughs> and fortunately, uh, after some terrible events, they're, if you will, rescued by present day humans from Earth. Okay. But those humans are themselves now on, on the land, as it were. And they okay. have to convince these out-of-timers. It's sort of the reverse of, of like the 1432 or 1632 series by mm. Eric Flint, right? Instead yeah. of being sent in the far past, you're now in the far future. Yeah. With a lot of the gotcha. same problems. Is that the, um, and, that's the, that's the idea behind the whole universe, the Kane Raritan? Um, it's, well, or is that just it's your an, book? It's an important chunk of the universe, but it's okay. definitely at the heart of the story that I wrote or the novella that gotcha. I wrote. Gotcha. Okay. Where, um, for, for a number of reasons that are integral to the mainline story, the only people available to do things necessary to save earth in the present day hmm. are the people that were abducted from the past. Sure. Sure. Okay. That and for, for I have not read that, that one matter, yet, but I will. But yeah. the uh, the the people that were left, you know, the the best of the best had were taken out of stasis, if you will, and used up by both the good guys and the bad guys. And the ones that are left are the ones they thought. Ah, I'm not sure I want to wake that person up. They're they're a bit of a problem case <laughs> because they have access to their files. So sure. think of it as um, uh, gosh, what's it called? The Dirty Dozen with yeah. Lee Marvin. Sure. Yep. Set 200 yep. years in the future. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so have you ever gotten stuck on a story that you've been writing? How oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on four different projects right now. And when I get stuck on one, I try to return to the other. And okay. you cycle through because the key thing is to keep writing, right? You, yeah. if, you, if you have a single project and you get stuck and you do nothing, then you just do nothing. Wither a little bit. Yeah. You wither. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Griff Barber, uh, is really good at reminding me to get my fourth point of contact in gear and get to being productive. Sure. So, sure. Uh, thank you, Griff, for that. <laughs> How many words a day are you trying to write? At the, 2K. Right now? 2K right now? Okay. That, that's my objective. Some days better, yeah. some days not better. <laughs> what and time of day? At least five days a week. Sure. What time, um, what time one of day? One of the people who very, um, in a very disciplined way, who treats writing as work as opposed to, you know, it's art and I'm an artiste and I can only write when the mood's upon me is, uh, is Larry Correa. Yeah. And rain or shine, Larry writes every day. It's yep. his job. He gets up, he has a routine, he gets behind the desk and he cranks out the words sure, because sure. it's his job. You got to show up to your job. Right. Yep. Uh, and for that's one, I think that work ethic is one of the key components to his success. Okay. Yeah, that's what I, I'm trying take, to. That's what I'm trying to get to is, is because I am trying to work on that and and have a couple short stories, but I've got to redo them and and one of them really needs to be its own book, not just a short story. So um, I'm looking. I know that feeling. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Eight thousand words just doesn't let you tell a whole lot of story if you, if there's a lot of meat to the bone behind the scenes, I guess. Indeed. Uh, and I've, I've written stories as short as 6,000 words. Um, I've, I've had, uh, well, the, the novel I wrote with John, it was supposed to be one novel originally. Mm-hmm. And I, the w- book that I was working on was well over 200K and growing. I wasn't done yet. <laughs> and I said, what do you want to do about that? And he consulted with the publisher. And she took a look at the draft and says, you know what? Let's make it two books. And I went, can we do that? And she goes, I'm the publisher. I can do whatever I want. I'm like, yes, ma'am. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's that works that way. I think, and John did the same thing when he went into Larry's universe for his. Uh, hey, yeah, I got three Monster books. Hunter Grunge, Monster Hunter Memoirs, and Monster yeah. Hunter. Uh, oh, sorry, it's actually Memoirs. Sinners and Saints. Uh, Grunge, yeah. Sinners and Saints. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, his the way he can turn out content. I mean, I he'd lock himself in the basement for a month and come out with something and yeah but, uh, well with several somethings yeah several somethings yeah for sure when, so, when john is writing writing yeah. he turns out ideas and copy um in the way that you and i breathe mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. It, it just it just happens it's mad I've, i watched him do it and it's it's magic yeah um and so how do you balance yeah how do you balance your writing with everything else you've got going on right now Great question. Uh, the answer is I don't very well. Uh, I have, uh, I'm fortunate that I have three healthy sons and a growing number of healthy grandchildren sure. and I'm working from home. Yeah. So I have to exercise discipline first and foremost about keeping the work segregated from home life. Sure. And since I'm not a full-time writer, then I write either early in the morning or later in the evening. Okay. Um, and I really try to do it in the morning because in the evening, it's really easy to say, oh, I'm tired. I'm not feeling it. Yeah. I'm hungry. I'm sore. Pick the reason. Yeah. And so the excuses seem to be more powerful in the evening. Yep. And so yeah, for that reason, I, I try to write first thing in the morning when the house is quiet and the phone hasn't begun, write, uh, begun ringing yet. Yeah. Uh, because once the day gets underway and other folks begin demanding your time, which is reasonable. Um, Are you on an East Coast work schedule right now, too? <laughs> I would. <laughs> I would be content. I would be content, Tony, if I had a uh, coach that was schedule. my schedule, <laughs> because my I, I have East Coast um, interactions, I have West Coast interactions, and I also have professional responsibilities and activities in Hawaii. Oh wow! So my day begins around six thirty. Okay. And it ends around seven thirty-eight. Okay. Okay. PM. And you fit in, do you try to fit in writing? You, you said you mainly in the morning is when you do most of your writing. Do you also just yeah. fit it in during the day if you've got downtime or, or are you not that? Um, I try of, if I can program that in, but by and large, no, it's, it's, uh, I get up uh, a quick PT, cup of coffee, sit down and I've got an hour or so uh, before the phone really begins and the email begins to flow. Yeah. The email is a terrible mistress. And I work oh, hard just your phone too. not to use my inbox <laughs> as my project schedule or my, mm-hmm. my, my program management tool. Yeah. But because email is this fire hose of demand and information, I refer to it far too often. I, my, yeah. There's this, there's this mythical thing called inbox zero. Have you heard of the idea? No, but getting your inbox down to zero. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of every day, your inbox should be empty. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And Good like, luck with that. <laughs> and I look at mine and it says, 3,244 unopened. I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's not quite that bad, but yeah, it's, yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say there? The, the, uh, what was that? Maybe I'll have to edit this part out, but because I usually catch myself doing this at least once, but yeah, just a, I, I, oh yeah, going back to uh, just workday and email and things like that. I've tried to go the Tim Ferriss route of four hour work week where you only check your email once an hour, something like that. And I can't, I, I just can't quite go that far because I, I work with a few salespeople that are demanding as salespeople usually are. And mm. expect well, depending me, on my yeah. project, 
there are often people who are relying on me to provide them information on a timely basis. Sure. Yep. yep. And if I miss a communication cycle, it can double the amount of time required for them to go back to being productive, or at least sure. I imagine myself to be that important yeah. to them. Yeah. And um, so I, I have not been able to reduce my inbox looking to less often than every say quarter hour yeah. to half an hour. Yeah. That's um, kind of about what I tried to get if to. I, got yeah. a, I have a really high priority. I'll just close the work computer where the email comes in and I've got a separate computer also for work I'll be, and I'll be working on a document or I'll mm -hmm. be working on a bit of code or I'll be uh, reading something hard copy and I just won't sure. pay attention for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, although if I wait long enough, my I can feel my anxiety building. So <laughs> the conditioning, uh, conditioning. Yeah. Do you find that morning uh, exercise kind of helpful to get you going? Oh, it's critical. I, yeah. If I don't exercise and I don't exercise enough as it is clearly, yeah. uh, but when I do have a schedule and I'm, and I'm disciplined about it, it's an enabling mechanism, not a distraction. Sure. So sure. I, and it's, again, because it's easy to sit on my, on my, uh, my butt and then develop a case of swivel chair spread, you mm -hmm. know, eating and reading and typing and reading and eating and coffee. And it's just yeah. not healthy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure your listeners have heard this, but you know, uh, sitting behind your desk is the new smoking, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 I've actually well, switched my... to a standing desk and things like that as well. And it, it doesn't help all the time necessarily, but I mean, there's sometimes you just want to sit down for a while and changing the geometry of, of, yeah of how I sit and how I type mm -hmm. uh, puts off repetitive motion injuries. Sure. Uh, Chuck Gannon actually does some of his work. Not only does he have a standing desk, but he's got a, a, a treadmill that, okay. he, that he walks on as he's working. So that's <laughs> some next level stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. I have not gone that far, but I'm hoping as we start to travel that I'll be sitting out in my camper in the morning, just having a cup of coffee in the, mm -hmm. in the morning and, just chilling out outside typing and stuff. So I'm, I'll think, I may give that a try. I've, I've experienced productivity in writing uh, outside in the mm -hmm. context of being in a cafe with a collab, someone I'm, with whom I'm collaborating. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think I've tried, and I've also oddly enough been able to go to bookstores mm -hmm. and crack open my notebook PC sure. and type away at a, you know, at one of those internal cafes. Um, and a, a lot of that's been, um, perturbed by the COVID-19 restrictions on oh, social distancing <laughs> and which businesses are essential, yeah. et cetera, ad nauseum. Um, but I'm fortunate, we're all fortunate that uh, as the number of vaccinations climbs, that mm -hmm. some of those restrictions are being reduced. Yeah. In fact, some states are going entirely mask-free. Yeah. Um, I'm in California. It's unlikely that this state will go fully mask-free ever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Iowa and we've been mask free for months. So yeah, it's just it's kind of a different now, my world. felicitations, sir. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm very jealous. Um, but uh, I certainly the, the projects that I'm working on uh, would benefit from great even greater discipline and, and more writing. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got uh, a collaboration going with Chuck Gannon. Okay. And uh, the official announcement will be pending, but it's uh, it's looking like a novel and not a novella. Okay. But, uh, same universe or different in, in the came your universe. Okay. Um, but there's no contract for it yet. So this is, this is sort of pre-decision we're doing, <laughs> we're doing some early writing and we're going to be uh, proposing this to our publisher. Mm -hmm. And of course I'm working on my own novel set in the genius war, um, yep. Yep. universe. 
short story from that available in the anthology called um, Noir Fatal, edited by Casey Zell and Larry Correa. Oh, sure, sure. Yep. And, uh, and the notion there is that uh, some places under certain circumstances actually, if you will, develop uh, a genius loci, an intellect, and it okay. can manifest as a person. And how, you know, how would a hidden world of those sorts of beings and their servitors interact with us in present day? Sure. And by present day, I mean 20th century and 21st century. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and I'm also working on a project with Griff Barber. Do you have a sorry? Sorry, a, do you have a publication date for your Genius War novel yet, or not? I don't. I I, I will have a publication date when I have a signed contract for that. Okay. Who? Uh, I probably don't want to say who that's going to be through. Then I'm guessing until you. I, 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 it won't surprise anyone if it comes <laughs> to pass. Uh, but at okay. the moment, no signed contract means no disclosure. Okay. Sure. Then you were going on to. What else do you have going on? And I'm also collaborating uh, with Griff Barber okay. on a, let's call it a space opera type uh, novella. Okay. Where we're writing some rated stories, um, sort of in the uh, same way that um, um, uh, Jerry Pornell collaborated and, and wrote some very interesting uh, space opera mm-hmm. with, his, with his partners. Yeah. And he, you know, he wrote extensively with Drake. He wrote with Sterling, mm-hmm. um, and of course he wrote with uh, uh, with a couple others. Um, sure. But in any event, it's the Sterling Cornell uh, collaborations that are sort of our inspiration. Okay. And then lastly, I'm experimenting with uh, with uh, what I'll call um, contemporary fantasy, not urban fantasy, but sort of military fantasy. Okay. Um, not unlike the work that Nick Cole has done in his Forgotten Ruins novel that he's worked on with Jason Aspach. Okay. I'll have to link that up. Yeah. Okay. I always mispronounce his name. Sorry, Jason. <laughs> uh, but they released a really great book uh, in the, uh, recently, which mm-hmm. I strongly recommend. It's available on, I think, Kindle Unlimited. Okay. Um, and the idea is that um, due to uh, terrible circumstances in our current space time, uh, the good guys send soldiers forward into time and that car's horribly awry. And when they finally uh, get to their destination, they've sort of missed their time, intended time window target. Mm-hmm. And things have gone, they've gone so far forward that earth isn't recognizable. Uh, and it's been terraformed by the bad guys. And the bad guys look a lot like what you would expect out of a Tolkien novel. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. And so, any more work in John in the black tide rising coming up at all? Uh, not at this time. Uh, I submitted uh, that last story was for uh, We Shall Rise. And the one before that, uh, which was in July of 2020, mm-hmm. was for Give Me Liberty Con, sure. where the indomitable private Ostroga, um, <laughs> uh, who, and, and then Specialist Ostroga, has yep. further adventures. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a freebie story in that universe that anybody can read on, on Bain.com called Sea of Darkness, S-E-E, okay. as in the Holy Sea. Gotcha. As in gotcha. what happened in the Vatican when the light, when lights went out. Yeah, I think I did read that at some point. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I always I always mention it because it's it's a, a risk free way to sample some yeah. of my writing in that universe. Sure, sure. You know, free. Do you like having that variety right. of projects going on? To give you a, shift. a broad variety. Working back earlier in our conversation, where it's helpful to have more than one thing, so that if you get completely brainwashed. Mm-hmm. 
with the if the character stops talking to you, if you're not sure where to take the story, yeah. you need to keep writing, and so you can return to something else. And often that that shift, at least for me, between stories and between characters, uh, prompts um, ideas, and I'm able to keep writing. Sure. Do you outline a lot to help enable that? I'm switch? an outliner. I'm a planner. <laughs> you know, I. I I, uh, I met Steve Sterling in 2003 and asked about his process and I discovered a kindred spirit. He's like, I know I've gone too far when I've, I've got a 10 by 10 sheet of paper of hex gaming hex paper where I've drawn the map of my universe, you know, kind of like the maps <laughs> of the Lord of the Rings. And yep. I'm now highlighting something that says, and this is the field where they grow the grain that goes down this river it's going to be turned into beer for the feast where our characters will gather. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, if I allow myself, I will plan to that level of minutiae because sure. I'm a planner and a plotter. Yeah. And yeah. I, I try very hard to focus more on, okay, the outline should be where the character is going, what's a critical thing that's going to occur, how will that mm -hmm. change the characters? Because if over the course of your story, your character never changes, Mm -hmm. then I think you failed in one of the important tasks, yeah. which is the arc of the character. Character-driven fiction is the thing. It's got to um, have some great, level a of... A great author named Sarah King. Sure. Um, who says she's going to change the world by writing character-driven fiction one reader at a time. And I'm totally on board with that. She has okay. a number of tremendously um, good books, um, but I recommend one um, called The Rise of Zero. Okay. In, in or in her zero universe, um, again, Sarah King, tremendous mm -hmm. author, uh, can't recommend her books enough. Okay. She does. So, she does a bunch of romance stuff, which yeah. I haven't read, and I'm sure the fans of the genre would love to read that. Strictly <laughs> in the science fiction world, where I've where I've done my reading in her, in her books. You can be um, honest, yeah, Mike. If you've read the romance books, it's okay. You can say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, romance is wonderful, but I'm I, I haven't read her romance product line, That's if you will. So yeah. I can't speak to it from personal experience. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, I, I'm uh, frequently a lot of people say oh, they've run out of they've they've read all the Crea they've they've read all the Scalzi they've read all the Ringo they've read all the Sterling and Cornell and they've sure. read all the Drake and you know what's what's the next thing? And uh, she's an indie author uh, okay. and self-published, but her books are meaty. They're they're mm -hmm. thick and okay. they're really well edited and the stories are gripping. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, to a point, you have to get yourself into the story to some extent to make sure that everything fits together, right? I mean, maybe you don't have to go the, go as far as figure out which planted field is going to give the hops for blah, 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 but you've got you've to make, it's got to all fit together too, right? Canon is important and it yeah. exists for a reason. Sure. I completely agree. The universe has to be consistent. Otherwise, you yank your readers out of that willful suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. But if you have perfectly uniform canon from which you do not diverge, mm -hmm. but your characters don't change, mm -hmm. either grow or uh, become a different person somehow or affected by the events around them, yeah. then I think you've, you've missed an important part of the art of storytelling. Well, people want to see that they want to see that hero's journey kind of concept to a certain extent, however it may fall together. Exactly. And, yeah. and usually when, when people wield great power, whether it be in fiction or science fiction or fantasy, there mm -hmm. should be a cost for wielding that power. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, 
the toll on Batman from being the Batman. He's, yeah. But physically, he gets worse and worse, more and more worn down. And he's compelled to make more and more morally ambiguous choices. Sure. Um, or in Jim Butcher's universe, where ma there's magic wielders, mm -hmm. but there's a price for wielding magic and for being a wizard. Yep. You know, it's, it's not all uh, sparkles and rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> and in yep. his universe, unicorns <laughs> are not nice animals. They are very non-nice. Sure. What, he, he's the guy that introduced me to the concept of a war unicorn. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, so what universes, what universe do you want to write in that you haven't written in yet? Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. So gotta say I'm going to embarrass better. myself a bit. Yeah. Uh, the two universes that I would love to be invited to write in are Larry Correa's uh, monster hunter universe. Yep. yep. Um, because there's, there's so many terrific stories to be told there. Yep. Uh, and I don't think, in fact, I'm pretty sure Jim Butcher has never opened up his Dresden universe to anyone. And I don't mm -hmm. anticipate that he ever will. Yeah. He's never done anthologies or anything to like collaborate that. collaborate with him in a universe. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, uh, my all time, if I had the chance to write with anyone and learn from anyone, it would 100% be Neil Gaiman. Um, I was introduced to his work. Gosh, 15 years ago, more uh, in the when he was when the original Sandman comic was still being written and mm -hmm. published, um, and fell in love with his storytelling. And then I have since, of course, read other things that he's introduced, whether you know Stardust, which became a movie, yep. um, American Gods, which became a movie series. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got so much good stuff in his, but probably the the best things he's written are his short fiction. I recommend his anthology called Fragile Things okay. uh, to okay. your listeners, um, your, your watchers. It's really a tremendous work. And he packs so much into such a short number of words. Mm -hmm. he, he practices word economy like a miser hoarding gold. <laughs> and each word means there's nothing extra. It's really tremendous. Do you ever read your stuff out loud to try to minimize your wordiness? Cause I tend to find that with I myself do. is um, that I, I, I tend to get flowery when I'm writing to an extent. If, for, I do. Um, yeah. But I do it for a different reason or two different reasons. One is my care. I want to make sure that my characters, when I've got more than one point of view, that they're consistent, mm -hmm. that they sound differently from each other. Sure. Um, you know, if I have a character who might be, have a, a bit of ADHD or OCD, I tend to make sure that they have longer run on sentences, for example. Because mm -hmm. gotcha. uh, some of my friends and family who have that talk and think like that, mm -hmm. and they'll actually change directions in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> and I have, I think uh, my wife would say, I've been we're in the military. Yeah. What's that? Say that again. And military people, especially active duty, tend to yeah. communicate in a sort of clipped way and, a, and depending on their worker specialty, a very pronounced way. Sure. Um, but I also read aloud because I remember that a lot of these books are gonna to go to Audible mm -hmm. format, whether it's the actual Audible brand or some other um, um, audio book. Yep. And so the way that your narrator reads is gonna be influenced by how you write. Mm -hmm. And so I'll read parts of my books or my stories aloud to get a sense for how it's gonna sound. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And that also changes a little bit of how I write. because I. It, the number of books that are listened to um, and purchased by the hour, if you will, is uh -huh. continues to grow. And yep. I think we'll eventually 
um, be at least equivalent to uh, books that are written, sorry, read uh, in uh, electronically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, not sure, but I think we've passed the inflection point where more books are read digitally than read on paper. I would guess so. Yeah, I would think by far, but or at some point, sometime point, but that's and and, and that being said, uh, three of the four walls in this large twenty by ten <laughs> office are covered in bookshelves. Sure. Yep. Yeah. I, I got love. It. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I I love tape the paper format, and I love holding a book in my hand. Um, yep. I am Absolutely. almost morally incapable of not going into a used bookstore when I see one. <laughs> Truth. And coming Truth. out with something on the other end, right? Oh, yeah. something singular? <laughs> sure, sure, we'll go with that. Absolutely, something sure. singular, 100%. Yeah. Yep, Shifty okay. Eyes. So what is your, um, uh, do you ever see yourself going full-time writing? Gosh, um, if I am successful and being productive and I write uh, books that people want to read in sufficient volume to allow me to do that. I would love to do that. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, first I need to maintain the productivity and then I have to write things that people want to read. Yeah. And if those two parts come together, then yes, absolutely. I'd love to do that. You probably um, need this genius. I mean, your genius war universe or some other universe you come up with. So you've got your own world to play in, I'm guessing. I do. Uh, and, and I think that's an important thing for authors, for writers to do is to create their own intellectual property. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm flattered that, that uh, really successful and wonderful writers like John Ringo, mm-hmm. like Chuck Gannon, like Larry Correa have invited me to write in their universes or write and produce for their anthologies. And there's others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, by, by omitting names, I'm just, I'm not yeah. trying to suggest priority, just that those you are know, best known. I, the bulk of my work has been th- with editors and anthologies, and I don't. It's a long. It's a long enough list that it takes too long. <laughs> um, but one has to develop one's own IP, um, and Good. if you don't do that, then shame on you. So I'm working on that. That's a priority for me. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, what do you think it was that? Because John took a flyer on you, asking you to write in in his universe. What do you think it was that he saw? You know, you have to ask him. Well, I hope I, to I someday. <laughs> I, I, I can't speak for that, but I, I do know that um, uh, collaborating with him and providing at his request ideas or answers to some of the challenges he had, you know, going back okay. to ghosts. Yeah. One of the things he asked me was, how would you parachute out of a B2 bomber? I said, you wouldn't unless you had an appetite for really high speed complicated death. Why would you ever do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but if you had to sort of squint your eyes really hard and what's the least stupid way to write about that? I'm like, well, and so I, you know, I, I walk sure. through what a hypothetical situation would look like with mm-hmm. the caveat of, and I would never do that myself. Like I return to the, you know, I'm not sure what the stall speed of a B2 bomber is. Yeah. It's probably a lot faster than the, the jump speed for a C-130 or a C-141 yeah. or a C-5. I would guess the ejection speed for a bomb as well is probably not something normally survivable by a human also. Considering that they're, that they're explosively ejected, yes. Yeah. I, you know, who yeah. wants you know, two 40 millimeter blanks going off in the middle of their back? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, not penetrating or not. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what it takes to overcome the, the uh, turbulence of the slipstream as a really powerful... Mm-hmm. ejection impulse 
Um, I jumped out of a, uh, an airplane once and I was encumbered with equipment, which made it difficult to have a really forceful exit. And as a result, it's called contouring. I contoured all along the outside of the aircraft um, <laughs> and I didn't hear, I didn't, I didn't feel it as a great impact, but apparently it was really noisy on the inside. Sure. Yeah. And when I landed on the DZ, the drop zone safety officer who'd been in contact with the aircraft by radio mm-hmm. was frantically trying to figure out how many jumpers he had accounted for on this drop zone. Cause clearly <laughs> one, it had been that loud, had to be so injured that they'd be unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. And he kept coming up with a full head count. Well, that can't be right because there's got to be an injury. You know, none of you are injured. No, we're not, we're not injured. And we, you know, we count off the heads. We're all here. Well, that can't be right. We count again. No, we're all here. And someone said, hey, Lieutenant Massa, what's on your helmet? And I was wearing a plastic helmet called a Protect. And there was a big smear of white paint. And I'm like, how would that get there? I guess it was me. And there was a, there was a dent on the side of the aircraft. And... Uh, the crew was actually helmet. cranky, but my the uh, the jump master's like, yeah, that's she go sign it. That's pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So I'm I, I gathered from what you were saying before to really get into it, you've got to be professional about your writing. You got to write. You got to put in the time. You got to take the yeah. time to plan your stories. Anything else you would add? Um, the hardest thing about writing is doing is being disciplined and doing it every day. Yeah. If you do that and you have a modicum of skill, and you have access to a good editor, uh, you will succeed at a, I think, at a um, level sufficient to allow you to keep trying. Okay. Now, do and you think- you're not, you write something that it's, it's a breakthrough hit, you know, um, is, is sort of at the whim of the gods, right? Yeah. So much depends upon externalities, especially mm-hmm. in the age of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a point late in 2020 where after a substantial hiatus, I want to say in a given quarter, there were 240 something major titles released all within about 10 days of each other (laughs) from, you know, from established authors and first time authors, but for whatever reason, that just sort of how it worked. They all came out in the same interval Hmm. and uh, I'm not an expert in book marketing and book publishing and book distribution or book sales, but I do know that that harmed a lot of authors that didn't already have a large built-in reading audience, oh, sure. you know, in a multi-volume um, set of novels, for example, where there was a built-in guaranteed mm-hmm. um, demand for the next thing. Sure, sure. Um, and that's too bad because there were some tremendous books that came out that just didn't get sales traction yeah. in part because, um, although it's not the major part, having print editions of your book in, you know, our last remaining mega bookstore superstore mm-hmm. is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah definitely. Um, the industry's changed a lot and you can be successful without that, but it's harder. Yeah. I had Mike Rothman on the podcast a couple months ago and he's one of the guys that's been successful self-publishing himself and, mm-hmm. And that's probably what you're talking about is it takes a lot of work to do that. A lot more work, mm-hmm. I think, than typical, but he's got to arrange yep. his own editor. He's got to arrange his own translators, his own audio recorders, things like that. His, his own artist. Yeah, his own artist, yeah. Recover yep. work. Um, um, harkening back to, to Nick Cole and uh, to Jason uh, Ansbach, same thing is true there, but they, they've cracked the code. Uh, their Galaxy's Edge uh, series has been profoundly successful. 
-hmm. and they learned um, through trial and error um, how to arrange for editing and artwork and typesetting and all those things that go into and audiobooks. I, they were able to, uh, God, what's the name of the actor they were able to retain for the audiobook series? He's the, uh, the really hard bitten mercenary space marine officer from um, Avatar. The oh, movie. yeah, I know who you're talking about. I name. Yeah, I can't picture, I can't name him, but I can definitely picture him. Yeah, yep. yep. The white brush cut, yep. the uh, tank top, and the bulging biceps. <laughs> yep, I can't name and him, of course, but I can. The, the claw scar across his face. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. I can't remember that actor's name. It'll, directly we finish the podcast, it'll pop into my head. Yeah. But he, he narrated, uh, and Nick, Jason and Nick uh, did the deal with him. He narrated some of those books. Yeah. He's got a wonderful reading voice. Kind of like a Lee Army protege or something like that. Of <laughs> Yeah, he, he, has, he has a nice, it was well suited for the, for the genre. Exactly, yep, yep. So do you, uh, I mean, in terms of pivots or anything like that, you've definitely had a lot of pivots over your career. And I think that was one thing that really impressed me was you talked a lot about flexibility in, in your mind and things like that. And just being willing to try different stuff. Is that something you still think about today? Um, certainly. I, I very much, uh, there's a, there's a, a famous, famous, a well-known business book called who moved my cheese, Yep. yep. Uh, which is when things, when your world changes, um, you can adapt mm -hmm. and do the next thing to continue to be successful, or you can complain and mm -hmm. sit tight where the cheese used to be. Sure, sure. And I have always found it more productive to move to the next thing and yeah. to reinvent myself uh, in business terms uh, in order to maintain the forward momentum that defines, which is an important part, I think, of a successful life. Sure. Absolutely. And yeah. the, the direction that momentum, you know, the vector, if you will, velocity plus direction changes as you grow older mm -hmm. and you go from having small children to school age children to college -aged children to know, you know, the children all of the house and then you've got grandchildren. <laughs> so, uh, and in a similar way, you go from being, you know, um, a developer or a coder to maybe a junior project manager to being a program manager to being a program director yep. or in finance from an analyst to a vice president to a president to a management director, those, your, your vector changes as you navigate those steps. Mm -hmm. um, and to keep your professional life and your personal life, to keep those vectors aligned and mutually supporting is, is requires that you reinvent yourself because you cannot predict the things Mm -hmm. with a degree of assurance to allow you to have one lifetime plan um, in either of those categories. And if you want to maintain that forward momentum, you mm -hmm. better be ready to reinvent. Yeah. And solve, be, be open to solving fast. problems. Yeah. Being open to solving problems. And that's actually the book I'm reading right now. I probably can't see it, but the obstacle, like is, it, yeah, the way. obstacle is the way. Yeah. yeah. I love Ryan stuff. And then I use his uh, stoic. Where is it? is daily stoic where he's got uh, um, uh, a new a new saying every day kind of uh, to kind of help you focus on something different that day so mm. uh, nice way to start off the day with a little meditation type or meditative type concept but yeah all right well That's i think good. yeah unless there's uh, anything else i mean i i really appreciate you coming on uh we'll be actually be out in san diego and probably i've got a trade show at uh 
the hotel right on Coronado Bay, first week of December. So, oh, wonderful. <laughs> so we'll be out there, but maybe I can buy you a beer this time. And so, well, yeah, drop me a line, Tony. And, yeah. and thank you for the opportunity to appear on your podcast. Yeah, uh, I'm absolutely. excited by the opportunity. I hope we can get together again, yeah. maybe on the occasion of the release of the next book. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to have you on again and talk about it. So I just appreciate, you know, the view into your life and the view of, of all the pivots you made and and uh, how you do your writing and things like that. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a great, it's great to see all, you know, how you've lived your life and things like that as well. So I appreciate taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, appreciate no it.